can we just tell like forget about just like stop trying to save people with movies agree seriously yes thank you stop trying to save people at all with movies just Just tell tell good stories boom tell good stories Welcome to episode 86 of the Movie Bite Podcast, a show all about movies, movie reviews, movie news, trailers, and more. We're recording on Tuesday, April the 29th, 2014. I'm TJ, your host, and joining me today, he's abandoning us later as he boards the ark. It's Chad Hopkins. (laughs) How are you, Chad? I'm doing all right. How about you? Pretty good. It's been a while since we've done an episode. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's, uh, let me, let me introduce our guests and then, then I'll talk about why the podcast didn't happen for a couple weeks. So joining us tonight is a returning guest who's on the podcast quite a lot lately. He's just taken over the thing. It's, uh, Mike Fizz, uh, Mike Fizzle. I cannot, what is my deal with your name? (laughs) Hey, uh, hey, you, like I said, usually works. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks for having me, TJ. Yeah, and uh, and joining us is a very special guest. In fact, I meant to look up and see what the la- when the last time he was on the show was. I think it was only once. Uh, but joining us today is Mr. Michael Minkoff. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thanks. So uh, you're here today, Michael, to talk with us about Noah, because I believe that between you and me and Fizz, we can probably hopefully bring a lot of opinions and theology to bear on this film. So. Mm-hmm. And and you also host another show, um, probably once or twice a year, uh, on this ep- on this uh, on this uh, website on MovieBite called Movieology. Just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little condemnatory. Yeah, yeah condemnatory. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are eight episodes uh, of Movieology, and uh, you you have been on every one of them, as far as I know. Yes, I have. Uh, Eric may not necessarily have been, but you have. I think Eric was has been missing from one of the episodes. Yeah, I think you only uh, missed the last one, right? Yeah, yeah, because he didn't see the movie or something. I don't know. So anyway, so some, it's it's some terrible. It's it's good to have you on the show, Michael, and I hope that we'll be able to have a profitable conversation. It'll be a little bit different uh, direction and and a little bit different topic than what we normally discuss on the Movie Bite podcast on 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 this particular show. But I think it'll be a good change of pace. So uh, as cool. I, as I mentioned, it's been a couple of weeks since we did a show, and I've been um, uh, getting a little bit. Uh, I don't want to use the word burned out because I still love doing the podcast. It's just that I've had a lot on my plate and. Uh, I contacted uh, you, Michael, uh, to see if you wanted to be on the show, and you said you did, but you wouldn't be able to see the movie until such a time, and it turned out that it just was a good time for me to take a little break. So that's what I did. Um, And so now we're back. Well, it didn't hurt that uh, for the past couple weeks, there hasn't really been anything that should be Oscar-worthy next year. Definitely not. I mean, so, I I mean, not necessarily a whole bunch of throwaway films, but, you know... I don't think you're missing much, TJ. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, whether you may not think it's unfortunate, I think it's unfortunate. I think next week we're going to have to talk about The Amazing Spider-Man 2, if Chad has anything to say about it. I actually just added it to the bottom of the outline, so you read my mind. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, TJ, just take another break next week. Me and Chad will talk about it. We'll take care of it. And we'll talk about how awesome it hopefully is. Oh, but I, I've yeah. been away from the podcast for too long. I can't. I can't do that. So, <laughs> so um, Chad wanted to talk about how to train your dragon, the first movie, because I finally saw that. Michael, have he you? Did. Have you, Michael? Michael Minkoff, have you had a chance by any chance to see the first mm. How to Train Your Dragon? I've seen it like forty thousand times. It's I, one of my children's favorite movies. I take it you like it, or just your children? I think it's great. 
Okay. No, I don't let my children watch movies that I think are terrible movies. <laughs> I have to hone their taste. Yeah, very, very good for you. Um, to be I, fair, I, I'm 22 years old and I've probably seen How to Train Your Dragon as many times, if not more, as your children. Yeah, I'm excited about the second one too. It actually looks like it might be good. Yeah, so what did you think, TJ? Well, Chad, I think you wanted to talk about this because I, I, I don't remember if I've said it on the podcast or I've just indicated that I thought it looked silly and I just had never yeah. seen it. And and then I I saw it and I wondered why you guys hadn't drugged me out and made me sit in front of it and watch it before because I think it was, I did tell you like one yeah. time when we went out for lunch I'm pretty sure I did tell you I was like no you really should see it it's good and you're like eh. and I was like no you should see it it's possible it's absolutely I think possible. I've mentioned it at least five times in my run on the podcast so far I was gonna say go back to one of the first shows that I was on and I know like it was probably the first teaser for How to Train Your Dragon two. And I yeah. think in the in the items of interest, it was like, have you guys seen this? Uh, it looks kind of silly. I never saw the first one. And we're like, seriously, <laughs> TJ, you need to see this movie. I know we say that for a lot of things, but we really mean it this time. And you're like, well, if I have time. And, and I finally had time. And thank goodness you had you finally had time. Well, you know what the problem was, though, too, is I had been trying to do this whole digital only thing. Um, where I didn't have Netflix DVDs anymore. And Netflix's uh, watch instantly has been getting more and more uh, lethargic is not the right word I'm looking for. Um, Pathetic. Sparse. Sparse. And and it's not really necessarily Netflix's fault. They're, you know, the the content companies are really starting to not want Netflix to have the content, but that's neither here nor there. So finally I broke down and I went back to having a DVD plus streaming plan. And so I've been able to start catching up on some movies that I've not been able to see in theater uh, that way. And How to Train Your Dragon is one of those films. And I, I have to say I was quite blown away. Um, I, You know, I, when I think of DreamWorks, I think of Shrek. And Shrek is fine, whatever. Uh, Shrek, Shrek's a terrible movie. I know you're all going to disagree with me or whatever, but it's a toy film. Like it's, it's, it, it, has, it has very little substance to it, in my opinion. I see. I don't agree with that. But it's, it's no How to Train Your Dragon. Like How to Train Your Dragon is about five or six levels beyond anything Shrek related at all. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, where I would probably give maybe the first Shrek a three star rating. And the second one would probably be a, maybe a three and a half. Um, you know, and then they just sort of go downhill from there. How to train your dragon. <laughs> I, I believe when I posted on my profile on, um, uh, letterbox, I believe I gave it a four and a half star review. You did. So, nice. yeah. So I really enjoyed it. So, um, Chad, I, t- I take it because you've been pushing me to watch this film that you you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And uh, something I'd also like to mention is how good the music for How to Train Your Dragon is. Uh, it's John Powell, and he's returning for the second film, and then he's taking a hiatus from composing film scores um, to compose uh, concert music. So this is the last score we're going to have for him, and it's hopefully going to be as good as the first one's score was, and hopefully the movie will be just as good. Yeah, I listened to a mm-hmm. podcast called The Slash Filmcast. Uh, it's uh-huh. it's by SlashFilm.com, and it's Dave Chen and, and Devinda Hardware. And uh, so their, their theme music, I, I, I've always thought it was fine or whatever. I didn't realize it was derived from the How to Train Your Dragon soundtrack until I watched oh, really? How to Train Your Dragon, and it kind of messed the music up for me because, like, oh, that's that's the Slash Filmcast music theme music <laughs> so it was a little weird but um no I, I liked it other than that um i thought it was it, it was really um I, let's just say even though i 
you know, I, I kind of go back and forth. Like, I'm not necessarily the type of person that will be able to predict a plot in its totality, but a lot of times I can see stuff coming. And there were a couple of things about How to Train Your Dragon that were surprising and some things that weren't, but in a good way. You know, where people think they have to break out of the mold and How to Train Your Dragon didn't feel like it necessarily had to, but it did in a couple of ways, you know. So it kind of yeah. had bo- almost like both elements. I, d- I don't know how better to describe that. Yeah. Well, I'm just really glad that you finally saw it and really enjoyed it, TJ. Now, 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 I can have a proper opinion about the rest of filmmaking in general. Is that is that so? <laughs> You're going <laughs> a step closer, at least. Yeah. You're going in the right direction. I mean, I, I've now seen uh, Terminator and Terminator Two: Salvation, um, and I I had not Wait, seen that Terminator. Terminator Two: Judgment Day. Uh, Terminator- I'm sorry, to Judgment Day. Um, that's see, I. Ter- Terminator Four. This is how new I am to the to the franchise. Whichever term the first two Terminators are, I'm, mm, Judgment okay. Day. You're right. It's Judgment Day. Salvation is one later, right? Uh, it's, it's two so, later. I think it's, it's two the later. One. Okay. Terminator, Terminator Three is called something. It's called Terminator Three. Don't watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's called like T Three. I don't even think they. I don't even think they gave it a subtitle. Let me see. So, Rise yeah. of the Machines. Oh, Rise, Rise of the, the machines. machines. That's right. Says Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah, so is IMDb as well. A uh, so. a coworker of mine told me that uh, the second film, uh, Terminator Two: Judgment Day, was the best film known to mankind, and he is incorrect about that. Yeah. But it was it was decent. TJ, uh, well, I want to say this, not necessarily to completely defend him, but I think if you would have seen Terminator Two when it came out, it it has it doesn't hold up quite as well because special effects have come so far. But sure. at the time. That like that whole liquid metal, uh, it, just that that whole s- special effects. I don't know. No, no, I get it, and I I agree. Amazing. Like looking at it and through it, the lens, I, I even I would I would say definitely looking at it through the lens of what it was like when it came out. I I can see how it easily <clears throat> it, it 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 was probably you know very highly top rated movie, whatever you want to call it. You know, breaking edge, cutting edge special effects and that sort of thing. I mean, it took sci-fi to we're a slightly getting, new level at the time. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting derailed. But anyway, um, that's it's kind of where I'm at in my movie watching right now. So I'm getting caught up on some things, you know. Okay. Have you seen Kung Fu Panda yet? Because that's another DreamWorks <sighs> film that you had said. You See, know, again, that, that looked just look really good. It's not, <sighs> it's not stupid. It's really no, good. No. All the, okay. Yeah, Mike was right. All the previews, like, they make it look dumb. They make it look like it has zero substance. And okay, just, so it, at least I have an excuse for why I had I didn't see it. Yeah, but yeah, both I, of those are DreamWorks, and they're, they're, it's a classic example. Like DreamWorks did Shrek, and then they went on from there and made good movies. <laughs> and I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know how that happened, but I think they were kind of taking a cue from Pixar a little bit. But their their trailers are still really terrible. Like their their trailers are trying to sell it to the lowest common denominator, but the movies themselves are actually good. And I thought Kung Fu Panda Two was also really good. I agree. Yeah, so. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I'm sure we'll get to talk, Chad, further about How to Train Your Dragon 2. When does, when does that one come out? I don't have a specific date. It's sometime this summer. End of June? Yeah, I think it's like June 14th or something. So I'm, I'm looking right now. June 13th, 2014. Oh, okay. Now, you, you and I, Chad, have <laughs> not talked about off, our... Michael. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Chad, you and I have not talked about our schedule yet. I know you're going to be like gone for most of the summer or something, so I don't know if that falls in or out, inside or outside of your travel dates but uh that one might work okay cool 
Uh, so we got to talk about that further, but we'll, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Uh, all right. We need to move on because we ha- we do want to talk about Noah. It's going to be good. Uh, but star Wars episode seven, uh, the cast has been announced. Um, star Wars team is thrilled to announce the cast of star Wars episode seven actors, John boy, Boyega, Daisy Ridley, Adam driver, Oscar Isaac, Andy circus, Dom, Dom, no, I didn't practice these Gleason, Gleason, <laughs> And Max von Sydow will be uh, will join the original stars of the saga: Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, Anthony Daniels, Peter Mayhew, and Kenny Baker in the new film. Director J.J. Abrams says, "We are so excited to finally share the cast of Star Wars Episode Seven. It is both thrilling and surreal to watch the beloved original cast and these brilliant new performers come together to bring this world to life once again." We start shooting in a couple weeks, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and the movie opens December 18th, 2015. That's the other important bit from this little thing that I posted, which will be in the show notes. Um, so with the exception of Andy Serkis, I really don't know much about any of these other actors that were mentioned. I know, uh, I recognize a couple of names. I just don't know much about them. What do you guys think about this casting? Uh, I don't know anything about the first like four names on the list. Um, but, uh, of course, Andy Serkis, we know as Gollum. Right. And, uh, Caesar from the, uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Yep. And, uh, Domhnall Gleeson was, um, Bill Weasley in the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows movies. Yeah. And, and I he, didn't realize that until you pointed it out earlier. Yeah. And he also had a, a small role in, uh, uh, Jeff Bridges' True Grit movie. Okay. Um, and then Max, Max von Sydow is probably most known for his uh, films with Ingmar Bergman, the Swedish filmmaker. Uh, the only reason I know that is because I'm in a class that studies that filmmaker right now. <laughs> so um, he uh, probably the most notable of that is um, – crap, what's it called? The one where he plays chess with death. And I'm going to look this up because I can't think of it right now. The Seventh well, Seal? Well, while you're looking at The Seventh Seal, up, thank you. Ah, there you go. Well, so so one name I think that's notably absent from the original cast that I think has a lot of fans kind of disappointed is Billy D. Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What do you, what do you think, Michael Minkoff? Sorry, I got to specify which Michael. Just you can just say Fizz. We'll do Michael for me and Mikey for him. Yeah, or Fizz. I usually call him Fizz. So either way, okay, call him Fizz. Or hey, you. If you yeah. say Michael, I'm not responding. Okay, yeah, got it. Sounds good. <laughs> anyway, Michael. Yeah, I I was a huge fan of the uh, original Star Wars. Obviously, I I I wasn't. I don't really care much about Lando Calrissian. I don't really see how he's going to play into a new story. Uh, I mean, even a continuation of the original story. I, I wasn't even. To be completely honest, I understand why they did it, but even continuing the story of Skywalker and Harrison Ford, and I mean, I mean Han Solo and all the rest of it, I, I didn't. I didn't really care. I would have. I I wouldn't have minded if they used this opportunity to do something in a different place in the universe and just try and develop a fresh take on Star Wars. I mean, yeah. yeah well, I, I mean, I, I mean, it's kind of like anything's got to be better than the prequels at this point. No, anything would be better than the prequels. <laughs> really, honestly, I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine anyone doing a worse job than the prequels. I, I, I don't know what you would, it, even if you tried, like even if you were attempting to do something that was worse than the prequels, I just don't know that you would succeed. Like that was like a glorious <laughs> I mean, failure. How do you come up with something worse than Jar Jar? You can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't. I, I honestly do believe that part of me thinks that George Lucas was attempting to annoy people. He was just trolling all the star Wars. Fans. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. It's like, I, have a- I mean, you can, you can see it in the, 
What was it? Have you guys seen like uh, the People versus George Lucas that documentary? I've heard of it. Oh, it's in my Netflix queue. Yeah, <laughs> finally it's, it's, something that I I haven't seen that you guys haven't seen either. Well, it's <laughs> it's it's one of those things where I think I watched about forty minutes of it and I was like, all right, I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it, because it's basically the same stuff over and over again. But there's one section on Jar Jar Binks in there, of course, which is really funny, and it has Jar Jar Binks. It has that shot, and I think it's in the second prequel jar jar binks looks in the um camera like basically makes eye contact with the audience and says something along the lines of well everybody has their place (laughs) and um and it was i think it was george lucas speaking directly to the audience through jar jar binks with a big middle finger just saying oh yeah you thought jar jar binks wasn't going to be in the second one well he is (laughs) because i want him to be because you know because i'm george lucas so so there have any of you guys seen the uh, vvs video vertical video syndrome video Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and and I love the part. It's just a quick part right in the middle somewhere. But basically, it's like you, you know, George Lucas will have to re-release Star Wars, the skinny edition. <laughs> yeah, you're a jerk. No, <laughs> oh, I love glove and boots. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. They've, I've watched yeah, a couple of other things too. So, well, I'll say this about uh, actually, I've seen I think multiple things. Except for uh, John Boyega, um, I've only seen Attack the Block, but he was great in Attack the Block, and I would highly recommend Attack the Block um, for a little-known movie. I think it's becoming kind of like a cult hit. Uh, and Daisy Ridley, who basically has been in next to nothing, um, but I mean, I've seen Adam Driver in a couple different things. Oscar Isaac uh, was excellent in Inside Lewin Davis. Um, uh, uh, Adam Driver was in that as well. Yeah, Adam Driver was in that as well. Uh, I mean, he's in Girls, and I haven't seen all the Girls, but his part is good, even though I don't like the show. Uh, I like Donald Gleason. Uh, I like. I, I think all these people look like they would be the the next generation Jedi, and I I understand where Michael's kind of coming from with almost creating something new, kind of like uh, I would say that people think uh, he, he is Star Wars, uh, Star Trek's done. But at the same time, I've really wanted to hear the um, the Han and Leia have kids are the next Jedi's kind of continuation of the story for a long time. And I think that they're they're setting this, you know, 30 years later and all the actors are 30 years older. So they're not having to, like, play around or get stunt doubles. And I'm just so excited to see Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker again. So that'll be great. Yeah, and I think I mean I think it's pretty obvious. I mean it's all speculation at this point, but I think it's pretty obvious that what we're going to get is the older cast handing off the reins to the newer cast. We may or may not even see the original cast in the next movie. You know, I I, I to me at least that feels like what's going on. For the yeah, first time happening. I was going to say for the first time in a long time, I'm actually excited about Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I well, mean, at least they're dedicated to maintaining a continuity uh, between episodes, what four, five, and six, and the new movies, it seems like they're trying to make a connection to the that Star Wars, which is more than George uh, Lucas ever did. Yeah, right. I agree. No, honestly, I think the best thing that happened to Star Wars was George Lucas leaving because that guy. I, I mean, there are a lot of good things about George Lucas, I'm sure, but I just don't know any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you Where's... realize the best mo- the best Star Wars movie is the one he had least to do with, which is Empire Strikes Back. 
but all all of those movies, the best part of the movies was was their overcoming of limitations. They had budget constraints and prop uh, constraints. Agreed. And, and and so one of the reasons why those are cult classics is he had really creative guys and girls trying to overcome those obstacles. And their way of overcoming the obstacles gave those films their look and their feel and their charm. And when he had unlimited budget going into the prequels he doesn't have any vision like that's the bottom line he actually does have very much vision at all as far as what he wants that stuff to look like because it was a bloated mess and like it just became like a free-for-all i i have no idea where he was going with most of that stuff and if it hadn't been for the for three films i don't even there would have been a cohesive idea in any sense whatsoever like it, i that guy, I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I completely agree about the budget constraints and stuff, and we've seen that with other franchise movies before too. But I, I think that the problem is a little bit deeper seated, and that I think that George Lucas really, really, really doesn't understand what made the pre the the original uh, Star Wars film successful. He doesn't understand. Even right now, he does not know what made them successful. I, I think that's yeah. the underlying problem. You're probably right. I also think he's just kind of. A Dunder Muffin, but um, <laughs> I mean, I've just, I've just heard a bunch of interviews and stuff with him that are mind-blowingly stupid. Agreed. For one, but also I like there was one I read. I read some article in a gaming magazine about the demise of a uh, Lucas Arts, and um, there was there was one developer who was talking about how they wanted to get uh, a new Sith Lord in uh one of the games and so they they were like you know it'd be awesome if we got george lucas to name it and like they asked george lucas to give them a couple of names and it was like darth wickedius or something it was like it was nearly that ridiculous (laughs) yeah it was it was actually nearly that ridiculous it was something really stupid i don't remember exactly what it was but the guy was like there's no way we're going to use that. So we just ended up having to drop the whole idea altogether because we couldn't put the Sith Lord in there without his name because he's George Lucas, you know? But we couldn't put him in there at all with that name because it was stupid. So they ended up just having to drop the new Sith Lord altogether from the name. And He was just talking about how that was just a constant problem. They got hardly any direction. And when they did get direction, it was like, it was insane direction. Like, it made no sense whatsoever. So. Well, that's uh, that's George Lucas's legacy, I guess. Yeah. All right, one more item before we talk about Noah, and that is the Justice League super sequel to Batman vs Superman being directed by Zack Snyder. Woo hoo! Hey, is is anybody else having a hard time getting excited about the DC universe right now? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I I'm looking slightly forward to the new movie. Just. I don't know. I'm curious to see what they're doing with uh, Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor and Ben Affleck as Batman. I think that'll be interesting to say the least, but I, I'm, I've never been a Justice League fan. I've never been a huge DC fan. Um, in fact, outside of Superman and Batman, I have very little interest in DC. Um, so I, I just don't know what to think about this. It, it, I think it's cool that they're sort of establishing a continuity by keeping the same director. I guess that could be said positively. Um, but I, I don't know what else to say beyond that. Yeah, I haven't seen much from Zack Snyder that's impressed me yet, and certainly he's really disappointed me, such as with uh, Man of Steel. 
Um, and it just feels like the DC universe has no cohesion right now. And they're really trying to build something that's as good or competes with the Avengers, uh, and, and the Marvel universe. And they're failing spectacularly. Well, to that's be because fair, TJ, need- yeah. everyone is, everyone's building their universe right now. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, they're just, they're, their their mistake is that they're trying to do it in the way that Marvel has done it. And it was the same problem. I mean, this is a totally different kind of thing, but when Chronicles of Narnia came out, there were two big movie successes that had come before it, the Harry Potter series and Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the people that were working on Chronicles of Narnia were like, hey, we're just going to make it and make it look like sort of a mix between Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and everybody's going to like it. And it's like, no, that's not how it works, man. Yeah. Like, you know, and so it ended up just being a fail because they weren't really being true to what made Chronicles of Narnia work, which is not like some uber realistic, um, you know, fantasy thing. It's Chronicles of Narnia is like kind of a two dimensional allegory. And I think you should kind of drive it home along those lines because people like that like obviously it's a popular series so just give give the people what like about the series but yeah i mean to be fair the the first chronicles of narnia movie wasn't awful but then it just sort of went off the rails after that it wasn't awful but it also wasn't stellar it, it wasn't it was a, missed a very opportunity. good adaptation yeah it was a huge yeah. missed opportunity i thought right yeah anyway and i think they're doing the same thing now like the, the um I'm ha- I was happy with the with the reboot of Batman, um, oh, yeah, you know Christopher sure. Nolan, and I. But I think that if you're going to keep going forward, you know, especially with a, a, a director like Zack Snyder, you're going to have to take a different tack because he does polished, slick stuff. And the thing about Christopher Nolan stuff is, yeah, it's very polished and slick, but it, it has a grit to it, right? And uh, you know, a dirtiness to it that really. Uh, that I thought worked well with the those first three Batman. But if you have Zack Snyder and you're like, well, Zack Snyder, we want you to do it like Christopher Nolan did it, he's not going to be able to. He's not the same kind of director. Right. Um, you know, so let him do it the way that he wants to do it. Let him, like, achieve the vision that he thinks works, the, the part of the series that really works for him. And, you know, I mean, good luck for anybody trying to make Superman compelling right now because he's just not a compelling superhero for our generation. He's 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 basically invincible, and that's boring as crap. Yeah. People want vulnerability, you know. They want, like, transparency. We're uber cynical. Like, the, the like, even, I, I'm, Captain America, that's what they need to look at. I agree, because Captain America, we talked about this last, uh, not last week, but the last episode, Fizz, uh, you and I, and I I know Chad as well, we talked about how Captain America is Marvel's Superman, and they're doing it so much better. They're doing it way better. So... Yeah, I completely agree. Not not excited about this at all, but it felt it was worth talking about because you know it mm-hmm. is it is DC. They're like the second, the next big powerhouse in comics. So, well, I want to be fair uh, to Zack Snyder here, even though I think he's basically like the next Michael Bay, based based on how he directs. Um, <laughs> I, I think honestly, so me. Were you trying to sell me on this? No, 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 no. Well, I'm, I'm saying <laughs> on the one hand, I think he's the next Michael Bay, where like he can direct a decent movie, but it's very, 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 very rare. But even <laughs> even with that, even if he wasn't uh, the next Michael Bay, even if he was Steven Spielberg or whoever Martin Scorsese, I think anyone would have a really hard time directing a successfully compelling justice league movie because um, kind of like Chad was hinting at uh, 
just from the comics, DC's Justice League is almost like a whole bunch of characters of things. Like the 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 heroes themselves are really comic-y, even for comic book characters. Mm-hmm. Now, there's always the exception story, um, but for the most part, Marvel's characters are more human-like and compelling, and they have superpowers, whereas most of DC's characters are over the top. Um, and it, it, it makes it hard to, to be able to connect with a real, real honest story. And especially to bring it to a world that's real, like, you know, oh, this is the, the real life flash. Wait, wait. Okay. (laughs) How do you make flash or Martian Manhunter? Like just, it doesn't, or Amazon queen, like wonder woman, like where has she been hiding this whole time? Or it just, it makes it very difficult to, to create a very gritty DC universe. And I think no matter who, who directs it, who writes the story for it, it's going to be very difficult to be successful or especially to compete with some of the universes that are being created right now. Right. I, I envision the meetings at DC being something like a several top level executives yelling at a bunch of comic writers going, why don't we have a universe like Marvel has right now? What's wrong with you people? Which Marvel universe? You mean the X-Men universe (laughs) or the uh, Spider-Man universe or whichever one the Fantastic Four universe is going to be a part of or the Marvel (laughs) Cinematic Universe? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, so that's the the news uh, on that front. Uh, And we need to be moving on to talk about Noah because this is going to be a good one. Uh, But Chad, unfortunately, doesn't want to talk about Noah with us. (laughs) I have not seen Noah, so... Yeah, well, I mean, excuses, whatever. <laughs> um, so we're going to let Chad bow out, uh, and uh, Michael and Mikey and I are going to talk about Noah. So, uh, so Chad, next week you and I will be talking about The Amazing Spider-Man 2, apparently. Yes. Yes, <laughs> and you're looking forward to it, and I am not. I am. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting my tickets later tonight, so... Cool. All right. Well, thank you for uh, whipping me into shape on How to Train Your Dragon, Chad. No problem. You kids have fun. Okay. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Chad. See ya. All right. So Noah. Noah was uh, has opened in theaters on March the 28th. It had a budget of $125 million. It uh, opened on, uh, to $43.7 million. It has grossed worldwide $320.2 million. Rotten Tomatoes says that with sweeping visuals grounded by strong performances in service of a timeless tale told on a human scale, Darren Aronofsky's Noah brings the Bible epic into the 21st century. Directed by Darren Aronofsky, writers Darren Aronofsky and Air Handel, starring Russell Crowe, Jennifer Connelly, Ray Winestone, Anthony Hopkins, Emma Watson, Logan Lerman, Douglas Booth, and music by Clint Manziel. All right, guys, uh, I have a massive amount of bullet points and I've written a review. <laughs> so most people already know how I feel about this. Let's, let's, uh, let's get some of you guys thoughts out here. I guess Fizz, why don't you go first since I already kind of know where you're going with this? Well, I'd hope so. I think, I, I think this is like my fifth podcast on this movie. Is it really? Uh, I think so. I mean, not that I mind. I really like talking about this movie I mean, because uh, I really love this movie. Uh, I mean, honestly, I know it's not 100% faithful to the very brief Old Testament text, uh, and but it doesn't claim to be, and that's why it's okay for me. Uh, it's an interpretation that uses its exposition of the source material to give life and depth to a, a pretty important character uh, from a lot of faith tradition, so like history. Uh, it's... Um, a character and a story that I think are honestly 
they're misrepresented most of the time, especially in children's stories or Sunday school classrooms. For those of you out there who have ever frequented one, uh, <laughs> not, not only does it, uh, I would say refuse to kind of like dumb down one of the most religiously significant events, um, uh, in the history of, like I said, multiple uh, religious traditions, but I thought it was done in an incredibly technically proficient way. Uh, that was both to me, very beautiful and completely immersive. Uh, even if I had a problem with the narrative, unintended. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even if I had a problem with the narrative, which I, which I didn't for the most part, uh, it's still probably one of my, the most visually stunning and engaging films that I've seen in 2014. So I would highly recommend it to everybody, even though that's my, that's not my final, I guess my final word too, but <laughs> I just really loved it. It's probably, I think it's my, it's really close. I can't decide whether I liked it or Captain America more. Wow. So. Wow. Michael Minkoff. I was actually very surprised that I liked it as much as I did. Um, at bottom line, everything that's right with this movie is Darren Aronofsky. Everything that's wrong with this movie is Darren Aronofsky. Like <laughs> he's the major reason why there are certain things about this movie that they got really, really right. I mean, really right. The um, the visual design on the arc I thought was really fantastic. Like I thought they did a really good job on that. I thought that they did a really good job also of the flood itself. A lot of times. You know, and a lot of people talk about this, about the flood, that maybe it was just a little bit of rain and what was going on with people. Like, why couldn't they survive that? You know, they can swim for a little while or whatever, <laughs> like, you know, blah, 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 blah. But like, you know, the, the fountains of the deep exploding out and like all that kind of seismic shifting and just, you know, the explosive violence of it. I thought he did a really good job of capturing that. And I also liked his allusion to the, um, I don't know what painting it is exactly. Like, I don't know the title of the painting, but there's one very specific painting that I have seen before um, where there's a pic- there this this, I, this picture of the ark in the distance and um, there's some crags just poking up out of the water and there's, you know, people in various states of disrobement um, trying to climb up onto the top of this crag and falling down and it's a really painful, really visually arresting and disturbing image and he alluded to it very specifically in the movie and I thought it was a really, really, really good um, uh, just picture. I thought it was a really good illusion. Also, the the screaming that was going on outside the arc and everything like that, like really making the particular um, event have a depth of reality and a nuance that honestly, I think a lot of Christian filmmakers just wouldn't have done that. And that annoys me. It annoys me a lot to say this, but I think Darren Aronofsky, the atheist probably did a better job on this story than, than I think probably any Christian director that I can think of because, and he also did a worse job on this story than a lot of Christian directors would do for the same reason. And it's actually a really strange thing when I, when I start thinking about it, that the central problem with the perspective uh, of Arnofsky and most Christians is this idea of the goodness of man. I really think that's the central flaw with the film, the thing that yes. really got to me the most about the film. And I think also the reason why most Christians wouldn't have been able to do a very good job of it either. Because there's this obsession that people have with attaching themselves to and uh, to this idea that men are good that there's goodness in people too far off on that other side i'm sure that a lot of people are going to say well but this movie really displayed the uh, wickedness and evil and barbarism and primitivism of men as well but 
see, what's interesting about that is it wasn't necessarily individual men or men in themselves. It was the corrupting influence of civilization mostly because you notice that it's the cities of Cain that are spreading the darkness across the, the globe. It's when people get back in touch with their inner nature. That's when with their forgotten nature, with their original nature, with their Edenic nature. Notice the skin, right? I'm sorry, the say, sna- that, say that last part again? The snake skin. Yes, yeah, the snake skin. Yeah, this the snake skin. Notice that the serpent is original form was not evil, but from within that good original form, the black serpent emerges. But the original skin that was left behind is this talismanic, powerful symbol connecting the uh, line of Adam to the original Edenic mode, right? And so you have this this power and magic that is uh, inherent in the, in the skin and in the old Eden that men have forgotten in their lustful, selfish pursuit of civilization. Right. If only they would would reject their civilizational mode and move back to their garden mode, of Edenic garden mode, then they would be able to get back in touch with their inner goodness. Because notice, God doesn't speak in this narrative. He yeah, that really bothered to me too. Right. Because God clearly spoke in the in the biblical narrative. He was very uh, clear about his instructions. Depending on your interpretation. Mm-hmm. How do you but interpret? See, it's a really. It's a really important thing, though, uh, Mikey. It's a really important thing, especially considering that Arnofsky's an atheist. Because mm-hmm. one of the central ideas of, of the atheist mode is that you can be good without God. And so he created a religious structure inside this movie where whether you're Christian or whether you're non-Christian or whatever you are, ultimately every person has to reach decisions and choices for themselves and you can make and, – and it's about reaching your inner goodness, not conforming your actions to some external word from God. And that's a very significant thing. That's, that's ex- extremely un, even anti-biblical. Well, and I mean I would agree with that concept, but I think to say just because God didn't speak in this movie does not mean he's absent. I think he's very uh, – I think he's very present in the movie. I didn't and, say he wasn't absent. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, like, didn't say I think I, th- I think to to take and argue the 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 Aronofsky creating this thing point. I think he can't really create that point unless God is actually absent and people were just kind of making it up. But I think he's so present without verbally talking to Noah that it's hard for me to kind of buy into like Aronofsky succeeding at doing that whether he was trying or not you know i don't know but that, i mean that's kind of the other god didn't speak he doesn't give noah specific directions so noah ultimately had to make decisions on the basis of what he believed was right so how would you which com- <clears throat> no go ahead well do you know about the idea of god as transcendent versus god as imminent Let's pretend there's other people out there who don't know what that okay. means. <laughs> All right. Okay. So 
So the, there's this philosophical idea of, of, of transcendence versus eminence. Transcendence is, is otherness, entire otherness, complete otherness, uh, to the point of uh, total non-connectivity with created matter. Something that is absolutely transcendent is absolutely above all created reality, even to be beyond it, like no connection whatsoever in, 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 in a lot of senses. Um, and then you have eminence, which is just the thisness. It's it's indwelling. It's it's being uh, together with or with. Um, so, like for instance, the idea of God as Emmanuel, God with us. That's imminent. That's the eminence of God. But mm-hmm. the idea of God as being, um, you know, behold, Israel, your God is one, and your God is holy. Holy meaning set apart. He is entirely set apart. He is entirely transcendent. So within the scriptures, there's the idea of God as transcendent. And God as imminent. And the perfect example of the juxtaposition of those two ideas, of course, is the God man, Jesus, who was God who became flesh and dwelt with us. So he was both the transcendent God in human form and with us. So he was transcendent and imminent at the same time. But a lot of religions, uh, Judy, the Judaistic, uh, the modern Judaistic religions basically believe in a largely transcendent God. Um, and the Muslim religion believes in a largely transcendent God. That's why they reject the Trinity. Both of them do. They believe that the Trinity is a, perver- is a polytheistic perversion of, of the uh, true monotheism. Mm-hmm. Um, and but uh, So in their mind, God is transcendent. Well, here's a problem. If God is in fact transcendent, how do you get a word from him? And that was the main uh, criticism of the pragmatists to most monotheistic arguments is, you know, the American pragmatists believe that the main problem with transcendence is even if he did have a word, how would he get it to you? Because as soon as you got it, it was no longer transcendent, right? So, like, a a transcendent God is really a useless God as far as information, epistemologically speaking, is a useless God. How do you know that anything about a god that is transcendent if he's transcendent he's be above and beyond you you can't understand him you can't uh have any information that is actually accurate it's all going to be a corruption because you're you're knowing it and so obviously it's not transcendent anymore and um so i think in a lot of ways arnofsky was borrowing from the judaistic conception of god to maintain a, a sort of distant god who doesn't really speak and couldn't really speak because he's so above and beyond. And it's also a Platonic idea, which is why Pl- Plato believed in the, you know, the uh, uh, stages of eminence between the uh, heavenly celestial hosts and the angels and then you know, higher beings all the way down to the lower beings, all the way down to you know, the dust, the dirt, the lower creatures and everything like that. And there's all that sort of idea inside this, the, the, the structure of this film as well. Um, there are tons of Gnostic Gnosticism, tons of, of uh, Jewish mysticism, ideas from the Cabal. Um, you know, it's like kind of a hodgepodge of all the different Enlightenment uh, roots. But ultimately, this movie has an Enlightenment ethic, an Enlightenment moral, and an Enlightenment conception of God and man. And um, at the at the root of it, that really, 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 really bothers me a lot. Um, because I think because of those pre-commitments to those philosophical ideas, Aronofsky made choices that were against the biblical account that to me did a disservice to the story. Now, as an artist, his job is to, is to do service to the story, to the narrative. 
And I felt like some of his philosophical pre-commitments actually made it so he did damage to the story for the sake of his philosophical pre-commitments. Now, a Christian would have done the same thing on the other side. So, yes. I mean, I'm not, I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying that um, he, he, you know, he did a worse job than most Christians would have done. But I am saying that in both cases, I have major, I take major issue with that because your first responsibility is as an artist. And I thought that Darren Aronofsky is a great artist. And there are certain sections of this film, like the creation account, for instance, when Noah tells them the story of creation in the ark, I thought that was a beautiful sequence. Like, I just thought that was a gorgeous sequence. It was mesmerizing. My wife and I both were just totally spellbound that whole time. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, it's moments like that where you're like, man, Aronofsky, you're like, really, you've got a really, really, really amazing artistic vision. So why are you doing disservice to this story? Because like, I understand Midrash, okay? I understand the purpose of it. And I know Mm -hmm. in a two-hour movie, based on just a handful of verses from the scripture, you're going to have to add some information to flesh it out. Sure. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with fleshing the story out. But what what I have a major problem with is when you start contradicting the account. Now, you better have a really, really, really good reason to contradict the account of your source story. And I'm ta- I don't care, like, Bible or no Bible, I'm talking in general. If you're an artist and you are taking a source document or a source story and you are adapting it for film, you better have really good reasons for making changes to that source. Whether you're doing Lord of the Rings or a handful of verses from Genesis, you make changes I'm going to be like, well, why'd you make those changes? And you better have really good justifications. And I don't feel like Aronofsky's justifications really hold up for the Nephilim or yes. having Tubal Cain <laughs> be on the boat or not allowing Ham and Japheth to have wives before they got on the boat. I mean, all those kinds of things. It was like, these are just stupid changes. Like, these are changes to the story that don't, aren't really adding a whole lot to the story, in my opinion. They're, they're actually taking away from the power and simplicity of the, of the narrative. I mean, and this gets back to one of the things that I was frustrated with the film about, which is, okay, you t- take, it, take it outside of the biblical narrative for a minute. Just disconnect it from the Bible in this way. I, I will use Harry Potter as an example because I'm intimately familiar with both the books and the movies. Uh, the third movie in the Harry Potter series deviated from the book in many ways, but it did so because it would have been almost impossible to tell the story the, in film the way they did in the book. And I thought that for the most part, they did a really good job of adapting that. Now you go to book four and there were changes that you're like, why are those changes being made? Why did you deviate from the source material? And so when you take it outside of the context of the Bible, you you can see clearly and go, okay, that that was stupid that they made changes from the book. Now we put it in the context of the Bible with the story of Noah. And I think people are praising the film for the changes it made to the Bible. I was listening to a podcast uh, last week where they were saying, yeah, it deviated from the source material, but I think that's good. It shows a freshness. And like they had no real reason. And they didn't even understand what the source story was about because they were atheists talking about it. And they even got like they were saying, well, the Bible said this and Aronofsky did this. And I said, no, the Bible actually didn't say that. But my point is that they're praising this film. A lot of these critics are for deviating just for the sake of deviating like that really irritates me we don't do that with other books and adaptations well people do but that's usually why they're wrong which is why i agree with michael um on part of this i think if you do deviate i think you need a really good reason um but i guess where we probably disagree here is all the things that 
Michael, you just mentioned like the Nephilim, um, Tubal Cain being on the boat, the daughters thing. I think all those actually assisted themes and character development that help the story along. Uh, so like, but I, like I said, but ultimately I agree with conceptually what you're saying. But when I look at this movie, I think most of the things that people uh, can disagree with that don't really help the story that they're thinking about along is when they think about this as a, like a Christian story. And while it is a foundationally Christian story because it's part of the old Testament, which is, you know, obviously part of the Christian tradition. Uh, I look at this as Darren Aronofsky, even though he is an atheist, he comes from a culturally Jewish background. So what I expect from this film is a Jewish or culturally Jewish or mostly uh, kind of like that midrash that you mentioned that telling of the story of Noah. And I feel like that's exactly what I got. I feel like as Jewish people understand the story of Noah, barring like some of the changes or fleshing out of things that weren't actually specifically in the text or any of the other Jewish texts that Christians don't or Muslims don't really recognize. We have things that stay true to the themes of the Jewish tradition, which is what I expect once I do you know, research on who Aronofsky is, what he finds interesting about the story uh, altogether. The beautiful thing, I think, is even though he does this um, and tries to make what ends up being uh, what Michael's already explained, a, a, very, a very transcendent view of God, I think the movie at the end, even though it tries to give us an answer uh, or a worldview that says like, People can be good or people can't be good. What it ultimately does is point to the need for a Christian answer uh, or a New Testament answer to the end. Because if you look at this story biblically, if if the actual story of Noah ended and everything was perfect again, the, the rebirth of earth, the rebirth of mankind, uh, and everything was good after that uh, – then I think that the the theme of the Jewish tradition of Noah and the theme of this actual movie would have held up. But when I left the theater, I said, thank God that there was something that was truly redeeming, um, that fully redeemed us. Because it, like I said, in the Bible, right after the story of Noah, but we have the story of Babel, you know, so humans still aren't getting it, even though they're all descended from Noah now. So, like, like I said, I think it was true to the theme, and most of those themes, I think, are backed up uh, by the changes. And I guess we can individually talk about each of those changes. I don't know exactly where, where you want to go with it, TJ, but uh, I, I feel like we all kind of agree, but we saw some of the development in different aspects. Yeah, one, one yeah. of the things that you've both mentioned that I wanted to comment on was the uh, kind of the Sunday schoolification of the story of Noah, which I, I agree, that's a problem. I, mm. I, I was raised in a... Uh, a nominally Presbyterian church uh, when I was younger and went to you know Sunday school and I saw all the you know the pretty happy pictures of Noah and and the ark and the, all the animals and Noah wasn't that cute and they came on two by two and the clean ones came on by sevens and and that's so cute and and yes there's a problem with that version of the story because we don't get the horror of what happened we don't get how how wicked man had become so that God destroyed them from off the earth. He's never done that to the entire earth since. He's promised he wouldn't. But, he, you know, man had gotten so wicked that he said, I'm going to send a flood and kill everybody. I'm going to cleanse everybody from off the earth. And in, in, in our Sunday schoolification of this story, we just don't see that. We, we see this happy, you know, oh, isn't that sweet? God saved 
you know, Noah and his family. Well, yes, yes, that is the goodness of God, but we're missing the judgment of God here. So I agree that that's a huge, major problem, and I do also agree that that was one of the better aspects of the film. Um, well, well, like I said, and what I want to keep in context is that I think there are two ways to review this movie, one as a film and one as, you know, comparing it to your religion of choice. Um and I think if you compare it to Christianity, you do have a lot of legitimate gripes. If you compare it, com- compare it to like your Muslim faith, then you'll have a lot of gripes. If you compare it to Jewish um, uh, tradition, yeah, I would say traditional stories, uh, Jewish mysticism, uh, kind of like yeah. Michael was talking about. I think that you'll be like, okay, I, that, none of that, not, not a whole lot of that's new to me. But like, even as a film, I think, like I said, I think it does a lot of things right. Um, yeah, and as you, I don't know, Michael, if you read my review, I know, Fizz, you did, and as as I would argue, it failed on both levels for me because, A, I'm a Christian, and so it failed on that level because it did not stick to the truth of the story. Not, not again, like, like Michael, I'm not opposed to them fleshing out the bits of the story we don't know because what we have in the text is not a lot. Uh, uh, you know, basically, the text is very dry, and it says, well, God came to Noah in a vision, and he said, uh, build an ark and bring all the animals on board, and I'm going to send a flood, and that's what he did, and then there was a rainbow. I mean, that's that's literally <laughs> what we got in the text. So, yes, fleshing out the story, if you're going to tell this as a story, and, and I want to be very clear, I'm not opposed to telling biblical stories in film form or in any other form. I'm opposed to changing them in ways that distorts the truth, and and that, to me, and, you know, I, I realized I, I actually had this on my list. I'm, I skipped it somehow. Um, I, I meant to talk about, like, where we're all approaching this from. Like, like I laid out in my review that I am and, – and, and the other reason this is important is because I, I think when I was on uh, – when I had Dan Benjamin on the podcast uh, last year, I picked up a lot of secular listeners, if we can call them that. That's not necessarily derogatory. I'm just saying people who are not necessarily Christians. So they may find it strange to realize that, you know, this is a kind of a strange concept these days that I believe in a literal six-day creation. And and I think that, you know – in Things that show that we have an older Earth uh, can be explained by the fact, you know, for instance, the starlight. A lot of people like to talk about the starlight and how we, you know, the light that we're seeing from the stars now is older than what creationists say the Earth is. Well, I think that's very easily explained because my God is much more powerful than that. You know, he can create the backstory, right? So I believe in a literal six-day creation. Um, that's where I'm approaching this story from. I, I, I believe in a very literal interpretation of Genesis. I'm fairly certain, Michael, that's where you're coming from. Is that right? Yeah, but I also believe time is relative, so. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Um, let me well, I, I actually liked your list um, of things that you said you were for because I was like, I'm, I'm interested to see how I match up against TJ. Well, just but, just for clarification, uh, and I, not everybody who listens to this podcast reads this, so this is just a little blurb from from my uh, um, from my review that I think will be helpful for where I'm coming from. So, let's get what many of you will likely consider crazy out of the way, so that you may <laughs> ridicule me, close your browser, or go straight to the comments and sound off your disgust at my lack of science, my lack of common sense, and or lose any other respect for me that you may have had. I am one of those crazy Christians who believes in a literal six-day creation. I also believe that the flood actually happened, that Noah and his family were real people, that man was indeed so wicked in the sight of the Creator that he sent the flood which covered the earth and killed everyone except the eight people on the ark and the animals, two of each kind of unclean and seven of each kind of clean animal. I do not believe this flood was localized, as some do, but I believe this flood was a global flood which completely changed the ecosystem of the planet. I believe that there are therefore that we are all therefore descended from Noah. 
I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were sinless and perfect. God created them, the earth and everything, and declared it good. But Adam sinned against God. In Adam, all mankind, this is important, in Adam, all mankind fell into sin, and this affected all of creation. I believe that an actual physical Adam who actually fell into sin is a very important tenet of the Christian faith. If you do not believe in a real Adam and original sin, you cannot have proper a proper view of the rest of life of God or of salvation of Jesus Christ the Savior and last Adam, as the Bible refers to him in places. If Adam was not real and did not fall into sin, then you believe that God created something that was flawed and less than perfect. So those are some of the things that I – okay, so I think that was the relevant portion. Um, so, so that's kind of where I'm approaching this from, and I'm just, you know, curious if there's any, you know, and it's fine if there are in, in some ways, um, if there's any different ideas from you guys on that. Michael? I pretty much, I pretty much agree with that. Um, I don't have really anything else to say except for that. I think there are actually some very interesting scientific reasons for believing what you actually just read. Oh, I do too. Um, I think recently, the, uh, the they recently found uh, evidence of the in in the gravity waves of the of inflationary period of what they call the Big Bang. Uh huh. Um, and it was really interesting the whole discussion that was going on scientifically around that because they were talking about how, how beginning of the Big Bang or whatever you want to call it that there was a, a an inflationary period that may have been a fraction of a second where all of space was basically expanded out you know, like magnitude, magnitude, like huge, 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 huge amount in a very short period of time. And then the people who were talking about this, uh, this finding still wanted to have your 15 billion year, uh, model. And I'm sitting here going like, why do you need 15 billion years? If you just said the entire universe could have expanded to its normal size in a fraction of a second in your inflationary period. And then that's actually what the evidence of these gravity waves is is indicating. Like so this whole idea like time and space are intimately connected, you know, and and so when you're talking about things at at a cosmological level, um you, you can't really apply Newtonian physics and 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 linear uniformitarianism to that. That like that whole perspective is in my opinion actually less scientific and more anti-scientific than just believing in a literal six-day creation i think it's all like ultimately a long time ago and none of us were there so uh but i i'm just going to take god's word for it and that's what i that's what i believe and i believe that god does speak so uh, anyway with all that in mind I, I agree with everything you said yeah this so um i would say that the only thing that if someone asked me right now which i guess we're doing if i didn't believe I would say that right now I do not believe in a literal six day creation. Um, but everything else. So I'm completely cool with, but uh, let me say this too: the there's lots of people who want to die on the hill of six day creation or non six day creation. Like there are some things, uh, in my personal faith that I'm willing to lay down my life for, and non-six-day creation is not one of them. So, though I do not believe it right now, I don't... Like It's kind of like Michael said, like, we weren't there, we don't know. And ultimately, uh, to add to that, it doesn't affect my salvation. Right, so well, I don't care. to me, the sticking point is, do you believe in a literal Adam who sinned and therefore all of creation has fallen? Yes, that, I mean, like I said, everything else that you just said, 
I am. I've, that's why Michael Michael alluded to it earlier. One of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, not that we're like in our whatever likes or whatever, but like was the creation story because in the creation story that I saw Darren Aronofsky show, I, I know there was some criticism that it was, oh, it's just showing evolution. And I don't necessarily think it was. It's actually a, a, a very tricky way to, I say, almost please both crowds. Because yeah. yeah, I thought it was a hybrid. He still had the, he still had the original time frame. Yeah. Like yeah. he's even using the he even said morning and evening the first day like he like went through and actually used the original language so and, and even though like his his you know time lapse of the animals changing like it would suggest evolution it wasn't necessarily saying this came from this it didn't show like how evolution actually uh, is theorized to work um, so but and even like I said even if he was even if he used evolution for the creatures there was a definite cut. And it cuts to Adam and Eve separate. Um, as a special creation. Yeah, as a special special creation. None of the other animals were glowing, you know. <laughs> none, none of them had like the image of Christ or well, the image of God, yeah. depending on your, like I said, your faith belief. Um, so I, I do I do believe that there was an Adam. Um, so like I said, I, everything you say or everything that you spelled out, uh, I, I would say that I agree with you on, but except for the the literal six day creation. But even then, I it's not a hill I'm dying on. It's not something I'm going to war for. Uh, I'll sit next to the movie theater beside someone who's a six day creationist, and we can Good. have a very we can have a very interesting conversation about it. But like I said, it and, and the most important thing, it doesn't really affect my view of the movie. Um. So yeah. Yeah. All right, so um, I, I literally, I l- quite literally, don't have a lot at all good to say about this film. Um, well, you said something earlier that I'd, I'd love for you to flesh out because I think it's something that a lot of people have been saying. And one of my favorite things about this movie is that no matter where you fall with this movie, it it's it should spark great conversation. Which is, like I said, why I've been on like so many podcasts talking about this. Yeah, like uh, like the one I the only one I heard you on was when your own podcast, Fizz, and when you're talking to uh, Pastor Elijah about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he differed with you quite a bit too. He didn't like the film oh, at all. Well, he he liked it, but he, he was kind of hung up on the same thing. Like he he was so caught up on was this biblically accurate that. He did not. He was not able to see it from a different perspective. And like I said, I've had a lot of other really great conversations about it. Um, people just, well, like I said, this is not really the point. <laughs> the point is that either way, you're gonna ha- you can have great conversations after watching this movie. You can either have it with the people who really loved it, and you can basically explore the things that really compelled them, um, whether for good reasons or bad reasons. Um, you know, because there is some of that, like we can do it ourselves. Humans can be good without God. That there's some of that, and you can kind of correct that, or you can just conversate about that. You can talk about the how, in my opinion, like the movie eventually points the need for a permanent salvation, not just a temporary salvation um, or a permanent rebirth. Uh, that you can you can have people who hate the movie, like I mean, like TJ, like you did not like this movie at all, uh, and you can still have that conversation. Like, what was wrong with it? What 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 did you find? And unfortunately, most of those conversations start with it didn't stick to the truth. So what I would love to hear you do is tell us what truth it didn't stick to. And let's just, let's just talk about that. Well, okay. So Michael, you actually touched on what, what my, like one of my main issues with this film. And I'm not even sure, like there were so many issues like pick and choose. And I can't write a review about every single one of them because my review is already longer than most of my reviews. 
But mm-hmm. like one of my main issues with this film is exactly what you're talking about, Michael, where it made the point that there is something good in man and that's why god wanted noah ultimately to you know pick noah is because there was something good about him or in him and his wife and 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 uh what's the girl's name that uh hermione in in what's that yeah yeah um so she kept making the point like like there's you know there's goodness in us you know there's ultimately there's goodness in us somewhere and like that is just so totally against at least what I understand to be, you know, total depravity of man. You know, the very first tenet of 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 what we believe. Um, that that was that to me was it, where it immediately started to break down. And is, when I say goodness in man, I'm not. If it were a goodness that had been assessed objectively speaking. I, when I say goodness in man, I'm actually saying that man was the determiner of good. Like, because Noah, for, I mean, that was the whole message to Noah. When Noah went to Methuselah and uh, and he's he's basically like, I had this really vague vision where God didn't give me any direction at all. He just indicated to me, blah, 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 he's going to destroy the world. And uh, I don't know what to do, but I saw your mountain, so here I am. Methuselah is like, well, you have to believe that God gave you this vision in such a way that you could understand it. Also, here, let me give you some magic potions so you'll have a trance. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> some really strong acid. And, uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, and and so then he gets kind of further vague guidelines, but it's basically up to him to decide. And that's what Methuselah keeps on saying is that ultimately it's going to come back to Noah to make this choice that the creator gave Noah this choice and it says the same thing with adam and eve that the creator gave them this choice almost as if they were the determiners of good and evil like they were the determiners of good by choosing the good that was within their hearts or they were the the determiners of evil by choosing an evil that was also in their hearts and whereas we know that the bible says that the thoughts of man's heart is uh, evil continually continually wicked Mm -hmm. yeah Within this, well, but this is a this is a great conversation because I think it kicks off on one of the things that I've had a chance to talk to a lot of people about. Uh, it, it's the the will of God. Um, like it it basically lets you have a really great theological discussion on what you see the will of God is because if you believe that God knows everything and every action before you take it, um, you could argue on one hand that the problem with the movie is that. Uh, Noah and or Adam and Eve get to choose goodness or God already knows that they, what they will choose. So he selects them to do it. Um, and like See, I said, like there's, I'm not necessarily arguing for one theology over the other, but I think it's a great conversation that you can have and two different, two very different ways to interpret the film. So you're also getting into a little bit of uh, uh, you know this challenge that a lot of people have with with understanding God, and that is you know where, whereas I would separate it into two two categories where there's the revealed will of God. God reveals His will to man. Okay, He says this is what I want you to do. But then when that doesn't happen, does that mean God's will failed? Well, no, of course not. So there's the revealed will of God, and then there's the predetermined counsel of God that will happen. You know, there, there's two distinct things here. God, which we don't know. Right, we don't know what that is. I mean, was it was it God's will for Jesus to die on the cross? 
Yes. What what was God's revealed will to Judas, for instance? Was it that he betrayed? No, it said it would be better for that man had a millstone and hung about his neck and to be drowned in the ocean, right? His revealed will to Judas was not to betray uh, the Son of Man. Right. So so there's two two distinct things here. So you, what you were talking about, Fizz, kind of touches on that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, like but I said, this, it, oh, go ahead, Mike. Well, in this particular case, though, it was actually Noah's responsibility to determine what was good. Right, like, which is which is ludicrous. Which is different because it's almost as if it was Noah's responsibility to determine what God's revealed will was. Not what God's secret will, not what his predetermined counsel was, actually what his revealed will. He didn't have the Ten Commandments. I mean, and he wouldn't have had that either, which is why in the scriptures it says specifically that God spoke directly to him. I mean, it's such an important element of the story. Think about right. the fact that God actually gave Noah directions down to the cubit right. on the ark. Yes, exactly. Like, there were no Nephilim, and that's one of the reasons. The Nephilim had to be there because of the changes in the story that Arnofsky needed to make in order to maintain a Gnostic goodness in man and a transcendent distantness in God. Notice that mercy and grace are not in God in the story either. They are also in man. Right, exactly. It's Noah who gives mercy. It's what Noah who Nephilim? gives grace. What do you mean? What do you mean? The redemption of the Nephilim. It was justice. They, they killed they killed for the, they killed the people that they had originally made the mistake of pitying and coming to save. And he so gave, he gave them a just reward for for the fact that they were willing to help in his, the accomplishment of his original plan, which was the destruction of men, not helping them. They were they were fallen, and the Nephilim had pitied them, and in this case, they were undoing their pity. They they received they received a just recompense for the undoing of their sympathy. And if you see God knowing uh, past, present, present, and future, if you disobey God, you think He would just wipe you out of existence. So it could have been mercy that He sent them there in the first place, knowing what they would eventually do. Of course, well, talking about a fictional account of something that didn't yeah, happen. <laughs> exactly. Well, and actually, what's TJ really was there, and he knows. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. What's really interesting about the fallen angel story is that is particularly uh, Kabbalistic. It's also Luciferian, and uh, one of the most interesting parts of this whole thing is that uh, I don't know if you guys have done much reading on William Blake. Do you know William Blake, the the uh, artist and poet? No, I know of him. I, I mean, you, you've, you've heard a poem, this? "Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright in the Forest of the Night." You know, that's one of his poems. It's probably one of his most famous. Anyway, um, but yeah, he he had an extremely interesting perspective on uh, on the civilization, on the nature of goodness, on the nature of Satan. He actually thought Satan was the hero, uh, the tragic hero of Milton's Paradise Lost. And so, think about it in these terms: Do you know the the mythology of Prometheus? I feel like I should. Once okay, again, well, he, for those who don't, you might as well I'll explain it. it anyway. Okay. This is why you're so anyway. on the podcast, Michael. All right, great. All right, so <laughs> Prometheus was a, uh, was a titan who had pity on humankind. Um, the gods had made humankind for the enjoyment of watching them be their servants and, their, and watching human folly. And so at first, humans were entirely animalistic in the Greek mythology – 
And uh, Prometheus had pity on them. He had sympathy for their state. And he took fire from Mount Olympus and he gave fire to men. And so the gods punished Prometheus by casting him out of Olympus and tying him to a rock. And he was on that rock being picked at by, uh, by vultures and stuff like that and not able to escape. He was chained down until Hercules freed Prometheus from the rock as one of his uh, heroic feats, which is also interesting because Hercules particularly is a man that became a god. And, um, and it's, so it's really interesting to see that sort of like uh, self-image of humanism in Greek mythology with the Prometheus story and Hercules. And it's here in this story as well in the sense that Satan sort of becomes a Prometheus character. Um, the fallen angels become Prometheus characters where God has, is severe with uh, human beings and they have, they have pity and sympathy for the human beings. And so they, they fall to earth to bring knowledge and fire and technology to the human beings just like Prometheus did. And then God punishes them uh, by tying them to rocks, actually, interestingly enough. And uh, then they basically are suffering under the curse uh, of their actions, you know, even though in the end they were really the friends of man. So Luciferianism, as opposed to Satanism, believes Satan is a Prometheus figure who was maligned by God and maligned by Christians. And in fact, he is humanity's best friend um, because the knowledge of good and evil was not did not bring us a curse it brought us reason and uh and it it made it turned us from being animals into being uh demigods and so within luciferianism he's known as the light bringer satan is the light bringer and in this case the fallen angels sort of fall into that idea anyway william blake was had that idea william blake was also interestingly enough a romantic who believed that the source of all of man's corruption was in civilization, specifically urban civilization and the city, and that a return to nature was what was necessary in order to, ma- to, to regain our original goodness. I mean, if that isn't this movie to a T, I don't really know what is. Um, so anyway, both of those ideas, I feel like, flow pretty heavily through the movie. It's, it, and, and fundamentally, those ideas have been disproved over and over and over and over again. Enlightenment thought has never held a whole lot of weight. And I have no idea why atheists continue to go back to it, aside from the fact that <laughs> they're unwilling to accept that. Well, they're unwilling to accept revelation. So they have only two options. One is reason and the other is experience. And they flip-flop between reason and experience in spite of the fact that the incompleteness theorem of Goido proves that reason is ultimately flawed as an attempt to achieve truth. And any number of uh, philosophical uh, failures of, of, on the empiricist experience front should cause them to lose hope in that side as well. But they, they don't. They continue to go back to those and, and continue to reject revelation. There's no revelation in this movie. It's all reason and experience. That's how you achieve truth. And those are both uh, fantasies. That's to- those are both total fantasies. You can't achieve truth either of those ways. And even honest atheists would tell you that, you know. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Is? <laughs> the end. <laughs> no, this well, is like uh, a movie episode of movieology. Yeah. Well, well, and I like what you said about like the uh, the the whole Lucifer theory because I think one of the most popular things as soon as this movie came out was 
I, I had like a hundred people link me or send me or text me or whatever that, that, that Gnostic um, breakdown of Noah by the guy that I have in my show notes somewhere. Uh, and that, you know, it's a very similar thing. Like, you know, from, from the Gnostic view that, that the, every time that Noah was listening to God, he was actually doing the wrong thing. He was trying to kill humanity. It was only when he listened to, or he had the snake skin and he was listening to the, the other side, the, the knowledge part that he was actually doing the right thing. Uh, and I always felt that very interesting until once again, I talked to a Jewish rabbi and he kind of debunked most of that. But, uh, actually when you were talking, it made me think of another question that I had you had for both you guys. Um, since neither of you were really big fans of the Nephilim, um, yeah, yeah, that's a whole can of worms. Uh, yeah. well, I, well, I, like I said, I know you weren't fans of the Nephilim, but seeing as how the Nephilim basically had one verse and all it says in really that verse, at least in, like I said, the old Testament, not taking into account any of the other Jewish writings. Uh, it basically says they were on earth. Uh, they, they went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. Like if you were going to include them in the Noah story, how, how would you have done that? So, um, the, the verses that the sons of God looked upon, saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took wives of all which they chose. I, I, and I have no idea where Michael's going to fall on this. I do not believe this refers to angels taking the, uh, and, and, and breeding with humans and, and producing offspring. I, I just don't believe that's what the text, I, I believe that's, that's stretching the text to the point of breaking. Okay, I, well, I, I, then how, how, what would you do? I think that what it's referring to is the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain and that this what what it's saying is the breakdown of any righteous line left in the earth I, I I don't think that you can take the text and say oh well the angels came down and and uh slept with women and then we get these these uh hybrid creatures like like where do those even fit in the order of God's creation are do are they, do they have souls that can be saved or or are they are they salvationless? Are, are, you know, they're, they're, they're nothing. They're nobody. They don't have a place in the order of God's creation. And it's just ludicrous. Well, and like I said, that's another of these situations where I think if you look at it from a fully Christian canon perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I can understand why people would have a huge problem with the Nephilim. But if you look at uh, Aronofsky coming from a culturally Jewish background, taking into account sources like the Book of Enoch, where it talks about them being giants who were angels from heaven that were smitten with the beauty of women, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a lot. It, it makes them a lot more sense that they were angels fallen from heaven, which is why I don't have a problem with the Nephilim. That and because of some other things they did in the movie. But Michael, like, what would you have done? Like, what would you have done if you included the Nephilim of all? Would you just skipped out the Nephilim part? Yeah, I wouldn't have included them at all. Uh, I don't think they're terribly important. I mean, I would have the the way I would have included them, and they and he didn't do this, which was again kind of annoying to me. But um, things were just different at that point. He had some elements of this as sort of like the new Earth being a lot more fertile, um, and you know there being a sort of like magical time elapsed quality to the uh, soil and the water and everything like that. Um, and that that's fine. I have no problems with that because I think that the earth would have been much different before the flood. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And I think people were obviously different before the flood as well. I mean, they, like Methuselah, 969 yeah. years old. And, you know, uh, uh, Noah was like 600 when he started the ark. So, uh, you know, so 
the the idea of there being giants and just better genetics like that all makes total sense to me that the human beings would be bigger stronger smarter longer living mm-hmm. um in general because their genetics would have been a whole lot closer to being perfect than ours the fact is that over time our genetics are getting more and more and more and more diluted and um i i would and say we evolve, that right well, yeah, it's, that's exa- what you're describing, Michael, is exactly why I have trouble with the theory of evolution. What do you mean? We're, we're devolving. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, there is evolution going on there in that there is speciation, but speciation is always a narrowing of genetic material, exactly. never a broadening. Precisely. So um, anyway, the uh, when it – so you read this verse is now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they cho- chose. Well, specifically connected to that, you have the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years, meaning God is looking and saying things are going south. So <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm not going to allow these men to live for you know a millennium anymore because, like they're they're evil, and so I'm going to cut their their lives short, uh, so that I don't have to strive, <laughs> so that my spirit of life does not have to strive in their fleshly bodies anymore, um, you know for for as long, and uh, and then it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, so there is a connection there as far as a timeline is concerned. But I don't know that there's a necessary connection that it was actually the that the Nephilim were in fact the progeny of the sons of God coming into the daughters of men. Um, it just says that they were on the earth in those days, so it's giving you a timeline for you know the the, the deformation of the of the uh, righteous line of Seth, which I would agree with you on that, and um, sort of the in, the interbreeding that happened with the sons of Cain, and the fact that that created created a situation where people in general were worse people in general were moving towards you know the flood they were moving towards the wickedness yeah um, and I, so i was actually interested to get your take on that because i hadn't talked with you about it before and i know that in many ways we have similar um, you know I, I guess you'd say belief systems or ways that we approach christianity but but are you so you're saying that you would agree that that's not necessary that you don't see well, okay, so do you see that the Nephilim, not necessarily the Nephilim, but the sons of God, what is that referring to? That's what I'm trying to ask. I just think, I think it's just talking about the, the godly line of men. Um, okay, so, so, so kind of like what I said. The children of God, you know? Yeah. Um, like, and that, at that point, it would have been a whole lot more particular. You had Cain, the murderer, and you had Seth, the, 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 the righteous son of Adam and Eve. Right. So all the children that flowed out of that, you would have had the daughters of men, the children of God. Like Cain was denied of God. He was rejected of God. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I think there are a lot of things. Like, I don't think that the <laughs> Nephilim, people have said they're aliens, that they're, they're angels, they're demons, they're whatever. I, 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 don't, I don't really think that we could say one way or the other. It is a kind of a weird way of stating it, but the old Testament is filled with weird ways of stating things. And I think that a lot of times there's significance in it. And sometimes there's not as much significance as we'd like to read into it. Cause we're just all fanatical about exotic, strange things. Like there are 400,000 billion verses in the scriptures that are much worth more worth our time. But like, this Nephilim verse has gotten more track time than like pretty any other verse in this section, but 
people are like, I don't know what that means. It's probably aliens. No, it's probably demons. No, I think it's like reptilian shifters. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, so I, I just prefer to be like, I don't really know, but I tend to think that they're probably just the giants, you know, that were around at that time because of the strength of the genetics and that the genetics probably became more corrupt when there was an interbreeding between Seth's line. Obviously, in the scriptures, there's a connection between the spiritual degradation of sin and a uh, tangible degradation in your genetics and in your body and in disease and in death and all these other things curse you know of creation so it makes sense that at the beginning closer to the uh closer to the fall you would have better genetics bigger people smarter people people who are able to do things like build cities like for instance Cain went and built a city uh, obviously aronofsky has a as a excess un- believe original caveman like creatures that he calls you know uh, prehistoric man was able to go and build a city without the help of supernatural beings like fallen angels but the fact is i think they probably were capable of doing it and probably capable of doing it very early on and i would imagine that the civilization that was destroyed by the flood was an civilization on a level that uh, aronofsky had 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 no conception of in this movie i really didn't like the only way that he could hate the civilization that was there enough to have God was for it to be basically all the things that modern liberals think are disgusting. Like, you know, uh, just like pollution and barbarism and mm-hmm. meat eating and selling of women into slavery and all. And, and I'm not saying that a lot of those things aren't bad. What I'm saying is those are obvious. Those are easy. You know, it's like Arnofsky can believe Noah is doing something evil he's holding a knife over the head of a precious little baby and yet somehow or another the sophistication of abortion escapes to see um evil you know so that that was a really important thing that you just said and you cut out like during part of it can you say it again yeah i'm sorry um so aronofsky is able to see the evil of noah holding a a knife over a beautiful precious newly born baby like that's obvious that's you know and and, he, and because it's so obvious he's able to see the evil in it but for some reason the sophistication of abortion totally hides the evil from him and i think that probably if you were what you'd see tubal cain was not a warlord primal tribal primitive barbaric leader Cain was a i'm sorry tubal cain was a what in yeah. it's awful <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's not Tubal- your fault. It's Skype's fault. Okay. Well, Tubal Cain was a was a, a a skilled craftsman, a worker of metal, and an inventor of instruments. Right. Uh, the fact is that he was probably extremely sophisticated. He was probably the kind of he's the kind of person that Arnofsky probably likes hanging out with. Right. Um. You know, these these the men that God destroyed in the flood had built a civilization of such greatness that the dregs of it in Babel built a tower that almost reached the heavens right now you got to think like that's just the what was left over from what noah's sons could remember from what they had seen of civilization before can you imagine i mean think about if if you if we three were to be the only three men who survived uh from this civilization could you 
build an iPod? Could you make an iPhone? Could you build a computer? Could you, do you know how to build buildings? I mean, we would become cavemen almost immediately yep. because I don't know how to do anything. So you think about the technology and the civil, I guarantee you it wasn't a, a bunch of primitives running around in each other with rocks. I guarantee you they achieved some extraordinary sophistication in their ability to kill one another and some extraordinary sophistication in their ability to hide how wicked and evil they truly were. Noah saw it for what it was. God saw it for what it was, but we probably wouldn't. And that's why Arnofsky had to make it obvious, and that's how I question is too. Ugh, Skype is really annoying me. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with what I was able to understand, which you got pretty good there, except for the very last part where you were kind of cutting out. But um, I, I completely agree. Like, I've often wondered, like, I, I, in fact, I've thought whether it's an exercise in uh, – fun, fun is the wrong word, but I've often speculated, like, what was civilization like before the flood? And in many ways, what Aronofsky portrayed was so primitive – yeah, I mean, it just doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. I don't believe it. Yeah. You live for a thousand years and you don't think you're able to achieve something greater than that? Right. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, and God scattered the language at, at Babel, right? And so they didn't have the language scattered before the flood and they lived for a long period of time. And you're telling me that all they could do was throw rocks at each other, you know, I mean, and that's how they kill each other. I mean, I don't know. I And, and I love the point you made about abortion and and how, you know, you can hold the knife over the baby and you can see that as being wicked. And that's why Aronofsky put it in there. But, but the, you know, the sophistication of abortion is, is completely lost on him. Um, one of the things that really bothered me uh, was this idea that Noah told, told his son, you know, we, we don't, we don't kill the animals. You know, they, they've forgotten the creator and they think their strength comes from animals and we don't kill animals. We're vegetarians, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we, you know, even just saying we don't kill animals, we know that that's false because what's the first thing that Noah does in the biblical account? What's the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark? Sacrifices. He sacrifices animals to God. Like, like this is what God has told them to do. It's you, you kill these animals and you sacrifice them to me. You shed the blood of these innocent animals uh, for your sins. Yeah, but not for food. Maybe, maybe not. We, you know, we do know that God said shortly thereafter that all meat, you know, all all flesh is given to you for food, right? And and so we know that whether that was I'm I'm confirming this concept or whether that was a new concept, we don't know. But we do know that the idea that that man doesn't kill animals is ludicrous. Yeah, but to kill them in in a ritual sacrifice, as uh, Fizzle saying, is probably a different thing than killing them for eating them. And I don't even necessarily have a problem. If you want to think Noah's a vegetarian, go, go ahead and believe it that he killed animals for ritual sacrifice. Yes, probably definitely. And sometimes some sacrifices, there was eating involved, obviously the Passover sacrifice, you ate the lamb that you sacrificed. So, um, so I, I don't really know, but That's still uh, much later. Yeah. That was significantly yeah. later. Yeah. But I don't know if that if I mean, I know that God did use the product like they obviously weren't vegan. Adam and Eve had a skin made from animals. God killed animals immediately after the fall. Yeah. Um, and, and gave the skin to Adam and Eve to wear. So there there was there was definitely a usage of animals of dead animals after the fall. But it was clearly a consequence of the fall. Like it wasn't to be taken lightly. You know? Sure. No, I agree with that. Yeah. 
Um, I imagine being in the garden was a lot like the Simpsons depicted it, where you could just walk up, a pig could walk up, and you open it up, and there's bacon. A side of bacon. (laughs) Yeah. It's like the restaurant at the end of the universe where the cow comes to the table and asks you how you would like him to prepare himself for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird. All right. Well, we've been talking quite a bit and just kind of almost in general terms or philosophy or whatever. We haven't really gotten into like what we like and we don't like specifically about the film. And, and, you know, I don't want this podcast to run a whole lot longer. Um, we're, we're approaching uh, two hours, I believe. Um, so it's an hour and a half. Okay. Yeah, it's been an hour and a half. So, um, but let's let's talk in in a little bit you know more terms of like aspects of the movie that we liked first and then and then if there's any specific aspects of the movie, I know we we've, we've talked all around what we didn't like but maybe there's some specific things if if that makes sense so so I know uh Fizz you have things that you probably really like about this film because it was one of your you, you like you liked it as well as Captain America, which is just completely crazy. You're, you're <laughs> insane, but go ahead. Well, not not quite as crazy as giving this movie a half star, but um, I would say that one of the, like, I could list a whole bunch of things that I really like from the acting to the visuals. I mean, we've already talked about the 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 creation story uh, redepicted. Uh, I, I like what Michael was talking before about the design of the arc. One of my favorite things that the Nephilim are involved in the movie is they help build the arc. There's all this this continuing theme of the provision of God. With like you know, there's things that aren't stated in the story that this one helps clarify. Well, not clarify, but uh, creatively asserts. You know, like the the seed from the garden that gives them the lumber, the 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 stream that pops up that gets all the animals to come, the the putting the animals to sleep. The, the concept that once people realized the flood was going to happen, that they would probably be attacking and trying to get on the ark, no matter how that happened. There's even Jewish stories about the animals coming out and defending the ark. Uh, so that, you know, that concept's not foreign to me, but I think the, the overall thing that I liked was that, and uh, father Thomas McKenzie on, on my podcast pointed this out and I've kind of been championing it since then that besides the crucifixion of Christ, um, in the in the Bible, the the story of Noah is the worst thing that happens. Um, all of humanity minus you know, well, depending on once again how you interpret it, like six or seven people die. That's awful, and this this brought that narrative to me to life. It made it made me understand what it would look like having to wrestle with the concept of the sinfulness of man. It made me uh, wrestle with the concept that, you know, what justice really looks like from an eternal perspective. Uh, And it made me realize that Noah is not the white bearded smiling, you know, from the side of the ark kind of character. Like, you know, he, lots of people who go to war or experience like the death of a family member or a friend or, you know, or in a, in the wrong place at the wrong time and see someone killed in front of their eyes. Like they are often scarred for life. And Noah had to emotionally deal with almost the entire extinction of the human race. And I think Darren Aronofsky visually showed that in a powerful way that I will not forget. Okay. That's what I liked. <laughs> Michael Minka. 
Are we talking about what I liked? Yes. Yeah, I liked the set design, costume design to some extent, although the, we already talked about how it was a little annoying how barbaric and primitive they were because of his evolutionary perspective, but I'll forgive that for the time being. It was still brilliantly done. It was a cohesive image. It was well done directorially. Uh, it was edited well. The music was pretty good, aside from a couple over-the-top numbers. Um I thought that the uh, the scene, the creation account particularly, was really cool. I I I, th- I thought it was really interesting. the 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 scene where he talked to her and said, you know, that Shim is possessed by desire and uh, and Ham is covetous, and you know, Japheth would, uh, will, is a people pleaser, and you would do anything for those boys. And um, that whole scene, I thought, was really good, where he was talking about how sin was in them as well, and and wickedness was all throughout humanity, and that there was a necessity for punishment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I I liked that that was made explicit, and that that was given flesh. I liked the uh, the arc design, you know, the 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 flood. The actual action of the flood, I thought, was really good, and um, I thought it was well acted. You know, I mean, I, I, you can't fault Russell Crowe's performance or Jennifer Connelly or any of the other people. Um, they did a good job uh, overall. You know, like I said, what's good about the film is Aronofsky, and what's bad about it is Aronofsky. It was cohesive to his vision. I just think his vis- vision is a distortion of uh, what you know of of what's true, but. Um, and it's not just a distortion of the account. I think it's actually a distortion of 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 what is true and good as far as the story is concerned. Um, I, I wouldn't have a problem necessarily with the story, you know, with a, an adaptation making changes that to the externals or the superfices of it. But I felt like that there were some fundamental things that were tweaked. But we'll save those for the dislikes. Yeah, and I mean, I, I really have very few, but I, I do agree, like, the design of the arc was, was you know, pretty good. I, I you know, I, I don't know that I've ever had a really good picture in my head of what the arc really was like, you know, other than the Sunday School Vision, which I've always known really is kind of like, meh, whatever. Um, so I, I, I thought that, that that was a good aspect of the film. Um, and like I've already said, I really liked the realism of, you know, in the de-Sunday schoolification of the realism of that death, you know, that people were drowning, that the, the, the fountains of the deep were opened up and, you know, kind of, you, you can kind of hear the, like, like the, the awful wailing sounds of, of the people as they're, um, as they're dying, you know, and, and people clinging to the ark and stuff. And, um, I thought that was very good and very powerful, um, you know, and, and it really, despite the fact that I have complaints with the primitiveness, uh, of the, as, as you, as you say, Michael, and kind of the evolutionary standpoint that that comes from where, of course, man was much more primitive because we're, we're progressing and not degressing. Um, but, but aside from that, like it really did give a good sense of the wickedness of man. Like it, it really, um, you know, you, you didn't have any trouble believing there was a reason why God wanted to wipe these people out. Um, because they were just completely and totally given over to wickedness. I mean, I think that was, you know, a little bit of the bad aspect of the film and a lot of the good aspect of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and yeah, Russell Crowe uh, really was phenomenal. I mean, it's really kind of sad that, that this is such a missed opportunity, in my opinion, because, uh, you know, if, if the film had been directed and written different, differently, I would have enjoyed it so much more because the cast was pretty, you know, pretty good, especially Russell Crowe was, was really good as Noah, I think. So, um, yeah, those, those are really the only things I can come up with that I like about the film. 
I'd say it's hard to say it was a missed opportunity. What was that? Three hundred and twenty million dollars worldwide. I don't mean missed. I don't, I don't mean. I don't mean missed opportunity <laughs> in terms of money. I mean missed opportunity in terms of telling a really good story. Um, he means a missed artistic opportunity, right? Of of, of of a missed opportunity on many levels. Money not being one of them. The film has done well with money. I'm not talking about that. That's not. That's not the way I evaluate films. And yeah, I want not, to talk about that too. It's annoying. Okay. Do, do you know? Do you know what movie I bought tickets for today when I went to go see this movie? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I hope it's not heaven is for real. No, no, no. I hope no. you don't plan to see that. It, I don't. <laughs> if I if I do see it, it will be to bash it on movieology. But uh, yes, that would be great, but, actually. <laughs> no, and I don't even. This is what's really sad. This is the confliction of my heart. It, it, you, you, I wish that you guys could know how conflicted I am because. Um, I went to the movie theater and I don't want to give Noah money. And there's a lot of reasons why I don't want to give Noah money. The, one of the most major reasons is I do not think that art should be driven by the market. I think that people should make art because they believe in it. And that if people, if other people support that art or if they don't support that art, who cares? Like that shouldn't be in the, the initial priorities of why you make a piece of art. I think it should be about the artist trying to fulfill his own vision. I agree with that. And um, mostly agree with that. But I think in the movie industry and the music industry has basically been taken over almost entirely by this market driven, you know, distributorship idea. Um, And so it's basically like if people are going to go and see this or if we can get people to come and see this somehow or another, that's why we're making it. So, like, for instance, Paramount made this movie not because Paramount cares at all about Christian themes, Christian ideas, whatever. The reason why Christian movies are coming out like, you know, uh, Carpenter Bees in the Spring is uh, because they're making money. You know, people are going to see – Christians are going to see them. Christians are giving them money. And honestly, I don't really believe – I believe Arnofsky probably has a lot invested in this artistically, philosophically, Mm -hmm. ideologically. I do believe This is one of the first movies he wanted to make and has been trying to make it for years. Right. So I don't have any questions about that. However, I really don't want to give this movie money because I don't want to tell Paramount this is the kind of this is the kind of movie that you should be making for financial rather than artistic reasons. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense to you? No, it makes total sense to me. So conceptually, yes, but I would I want to give this this movie money because I want more movies like this. But I, I do not. I don't. I don't really want more movies like this in the sense that I do believe Arnofsky believes in it. But I think there are a lot of big name directors who are going to make similarly big movies with, like Michael Bay would easily make a biblical epic just because he's a douchebag and he wants to make money. <laughs> well, no, you know? the, like Michael, I I agree with you there because Exodus is coming out at the end of the year, and that you know that's Ridley Scott. And normally yeah. I would I would be like Ridley Scott with Christian Bale. I want to see this movie about yeah. the Bible, but that I think the difference because I don't think that movie is going to be very good overall. And I right. think the difference is kind of what you're pointing out because I think the reason I love this so much and it partly has to do with my being able to, to disconnect what I personally believe from the story. I think Darren Aronofsky was trying to tell. Yeah. Is this was a pa- this was a passion project for Darren Aronofsky? Like Maybe he could have given less than you know he could have not cared. Well, he obviously wanted to make money on some level, but that wasn't the reason he made it. He's been trying to make it for years. But they chose think, to market it in a very, I think, disingenuous way. 
Well, I but, did too, anyway. but I don't think that was necessarily Aronofsky trying to. No, it wasn't. But still, the movie, and I didn't want to give the movie money. So, so I, I oh. bought tickets to God's Not Dead. And what's hilarious is I'll never see that movie either. Like, I have no desire to see it. I just, that was of all the movies aside from Captain America, which I do want to see at some point. So I'm going to actually see that when I pay to see it. Um, that was the movie that I cared least. <laughs> oh, wait. Whoa. I just understood what's going on here. I, I, for some reason, it was a disconnect in my head. You're saying you bought m- tickets to a different movie, but then you walked into the, right. the other theater. Yeah. That's what I'm telling you. Oh, wow. Okay. I think that's not, I think that's not biblically, uh, very cool of you. Uh, I think, well, I think actually. We- <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm actually kind of uh, I have a, a a terrible perspective on this in general. Um, I'm all for piracy, actually, like almost yeah. entirely for piracy. Not 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 in general, not for stealing things, but I, I think that everybody should be allowed to watch a movie or listen to an album one time without paying for it. I think if you want to listen to it more than that, then you have to pay for it. But for myself personally, I think. If if that were the rule, that would be one step towards disconnecting art from the market. Because again, people would be like, look, if you're going to make this, you're going to have to be willing to take a financial loss because you care about the project itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm take a little bit more uh, a different approach to that um, because I, I know what it's like to, to want to make good art, but also to want to feed your family. Look, I do too. I mean, I have a foundation. We 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 work for free. We've recorded, you know, four or five albums for free. Like, I, I want to feed my family too. At the same time, I think the major problem with art in our society, the major, the first, if I were, if you were to say, what's the one thing you could do to make art better in our society, especially within the Christian world, I would say disconnect it from the market. If you disconnected art from the market, it would be better almost immediately. Yeah, possibly so. And 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 I will say this uh it, regarding your advocacy of piracy not necess- I mean, you, you know, what what you just said. I don't, I don't want to misconstrue what you're saying. Yeah. But uh I would say that from the perspective of the content makers, they should be embracing things rather than kicking so hard against them. You know. Yeah. I I think that we are certainly seeing um a, a trend where it's it's they're being user hostile. And that is a problem. I I, I don't I, I'm I, I'm torn depending on the day you ask me how I feel about whether you know illegally downloading what is currently illegal downloading content should or shouldn't be illegal. I'm you know completely torn on that. But uh, I get where you're coming from. Let's put it that way. We we did get a little <laughs> bit derailed. Um, in we that was my point. What's that? That was my fault. Sorry. No, no, it, it was good. When I say derailed, I don't mean it derogatorily. That's that's what we. This is this podcast is nothing but derailment. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's good. Uh, um, perfect for this place. But, but I do want to get back to, we talked, so we talked about what we liked, um, specifically. Now let's talk specifically, even though we've been talking a lot about what we didn't like, we've been talking kind of philosophically about it. Let's talk about specifically anything that we didn't like. Cause I think there are two levels that we can evaluate this movie on. And we've been talking about the one level of evaluating it against Christianity since it is a Christian story. But I think this movie fails on other levels too. Uh, so we'll go back around and we'll start with Fizz and we'll go to Michael and then come back to me and we'll talk about what we didn't like about this film. And I know, Fizz, I, I, I know I've heard you say some bad things about this film on the podcast. So I know you have some things. Let's let's hear. Um, well, and that's the thing. My dislikes are are fairly minor. Like, I, I, I guess I was just I was ready for uh, Tubal Cain to die attacking the Ark. Um, but then I had some really good conversations with people about. Uh, kind of the themes that he was pushing forward um, 
and the confrontation and the the development of Ham as a character uh, since they ended up not, you know, playing out that final scene in the Noah story about uh, Ham finding his father in some type of way and some interpretive thing happening and being actually cursed. So to get him to voluntarily leave, I know they had to change that. So it makes it less uh, of a pet peeve or a dislike that Tubal-Cain was on the boat, but it still is about the only part of the movie that I look forward to ending that. And the, the fact that the time on the boat, even though it was obviously displayed as the time uh, frame roughly in the Bible, or actually probably exactly in the Bible, it, it kind of skips over it so quickly that I don't think we're able to wrestle with the implication of what Noah's wrestling with during the time on the boat. Um, and it almost skips straight to the confrontation with trying to kill the children. And maybe if we spent less time with Tubal Cain, we could have developed those characters in different ways, but that was my main gripe. Uh, outside of that, I don't have a lot of problems with this movie. Okay, Michael. I mean, like I said, it was a cohesive film to a large extent. Um, if I'm going to look at it just as a film and just as a narrative structure and just forget that it even has a source story, just look at it as a story in itself. I still think that the uh, Tubal Cain on the boat and the whole having Noah and Tubal Cain and Shem and Ham fighting while the babies are being born was just too much going on at once. Like that was a really, really busy scene just from, I'm just talking about narrative structure. Like it Mm -hmm. was a big clump of a mess and I felt like things weren't really able to be dealt with um, because of this, just, just, it was just a cluster cuss of, 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 of events going on in a really tight place. And again, that didn't really fit to me with the idea of being on a boat for that long. Like that wouldn't have been the stress that I think would have been most terrifying. It like moved action, you know, it like moved toward like some kind of an action film cop out rather than really dealing with the mundanity and cycle and stress of being on a boat for months after, you know, and months and months and months and months and months waiting mm-hmm. for the water to go down. Like instead it's just like action, you know, almost immediately. And mm-hmm. I, I just felt that was just too much for one. If we're going to talk about actually though, as an adaptation and dealing with the source material, I was really annoyed actually that all the people it's classic Arnofsky, though. I mean, it's classical Ar- Arnofsky, but that all the people actually believed that the flood was coming and that Noah was right about the flood coming and that they were all like right outside the, 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 the ark trying to get on. Right. That like he, that Tubal came built a fence to keep him out and like, but had his whole entire group of people there right beside the ark highly doubtful mm-hmm. highly doubtful because that's not the nature of humanity see arnofsky wants to believe that's the case he wants to believe that if man were to see miracles even if he was an unbeliever that he would believe in the testimony of the person who is attesting by those miracles that's not true well, jesus, not jesus, how, jesus said that it, the one come back from the dead they wouldn't believe they wouldn't believe 
Well, and that's but, actually the reality. No, no, no. That is the reality. That is. The I think fact. that's the reality now. I think it's the reality. I, I, I think. Bef- I think before the flood, only being a few generations removed from the garden, uh, like we even see Tubal Cain in the movie. A, Go ahead. a few generations removed, like that, doesn't make any difference at all. Do you know how long it takes to lose information? It doesn't even take a generation. You ever like, played telephone? Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, well, you got the creation I'm, story, right? I mean, right I, by a supernatural act of God. I mean, but anyway, um, oh, are you talking about the Bible got the creation story right, or Aronofsky? No, no. Well, I mean, well, I mean, no. You're saying that like, oh, well, a couple of generations they probably would have forgot or whatever. But I'm like, well, oh, Noah yeah, yeah. just told the creation story. He didn't have a problem remembering that. So I think if he right. can remember the creation story, then I think ultimately he can remember these other things. And I think to the line of Cain will always remember uh, the interpretation that they had of what creator wanted or was going to do to them. Uh, but if you talk about now, I think now there could be miracles and people would not care. I think there are I, miracles and I think yeah, people don't care. Uh, I think the I, same was the case there. I, I mean, at least if you take the testimony of Jesus, he says that people were marrying and giving in marriage uh, it was. He says that the the future time will be just like the days of Noah, where people were marrying, giving a marriage. In other words, they were going about their daily life. They were doing their thing. Mm-hmm. They were not until the flood came. Boom! It's like seriously. It's like they there was no assessment. There was no thought that anything was going to be changing. They were just doing their thing, living their lives, going through their process, and then the flood came and took them all away to judgment. And um. So I think that uh, in in the case of – I'm just saying as far as the narrative structure is concerned, <laughs> for as an adaptation of the source story, it mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense to me that Arnofsky would have them charge the Ark because in his mind, again, he wants to believe that an atheist would believe the truth if he saw the evidence of it when in fact that's, that's not really true. It's yeah. not really true. That even if he were to see it right in front of his face, even if he were to see the miracles going on right in front of his face, he would find some way of explaining it. He would find some way of forgetting it. He would go about his business. He would live his life, and he would end up going to judgment without another without another thought. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's psychologically more realistic. But I understand why Arnofsky made that change, or why he made that interpretive interpretive uh, jump. Yep, I agree. Fizz, I, I know you don't, but no, no, no. I mean, like I said, I am. I feel like I'm like ninety three percent there with Michael. Ninety three and a that, half. Yeah, on that point, I, I just uh, it's once again, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. Okay. No. All yeah. right. Um. So I want to talk about a few of the things. If you were finished with with things you didn't like, I, Michael. I could I could go on for a lot longer. I, I mean, along the time along the lines of the. You know, as an adaptation and and compare it to the source story, but I think most people are going to be able to figure that out. Okay, well, so like I said, there's there's two levels to evaluate this on, um, and the theological, um, the summary of my uh, irritations with it theologically and and as a biblical story are that it makes God out to be a uh, not a God of mercy. There's no mercy of God present at all. So they've got the aspects of God out of balance because God has many aspects, and they took and magnified one of them, His justice. Uh, and, and 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 you know, God is a just God, but He's also a God of mercy, and they they. 
Um, so, so, so they've gotten the aspects of God uh, kind of out of whack. God, there is no mercy of God at all. And and as you said, or as you alluded to, Michael earlier, it's up to Noah to have mercy, not not God. Um, so God is very distant and angry in this in this film. He's he's angry at humanity and he's distant and he's not a God of mercy. Uh, God is also inscrutable and unknowable, but we know that God spoke directly with Noah and told him exactly what was going on. But in the film, he's un- inscrutable and he's unknowable. Um, and in how, this, many, how many times has God spoke to you directly, TJ? Audibly? Well, okay, so he doesn't speak to every. You know, there, there. You know, people think of God of the Old Testament as being this God who always spoke to everybody all the time, but that's not true. We just know about the stories where he did, but that's not even my point. My point is that God spoke to Noah. We know this. Um, and and based on your interpretation of the Old Testament, yes. Uh, this. I mean, this is what the Bible says. Um, so, so, so those are my frustrations there. Noah was made out to be not a righteous man, but bloodthirsty and vengeful. But we know that the Bible calls Noah a righteous man and, in and, that, and that he was doing what God told him to do. He wasn't out for blood. He was out to do what God told him to do. And it, it calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. The Bible does. So they've gotten Noah's character out of whack. Um, there was a perverted sense of the dominion mandate where because basically Tubal-Cain was quoting to God the dominion mandate that made Tubal-Cain evil. That the dominion mandate was made to be an evil and a bad thing, you know, where man's supposed to have dominion over the earth. But that was the problem, that Tubal-Cain was made out to be bad because he was taking dominion of the earth. Um, and then Methuselah was this magical uh, man, and he was a good man, but he was killed in the flood anyway. I wish you would have just stopped point for point so I could have like <sighs> given you a different like perspective on everything you just said. Cause if those were the ways that I saw any of those things that you just said, if I think any of those things were actually the way that I perceive them in this movie, they would totally be dislikes for me as well. Okay. Uh, did you have specific points you wanted to refute? Uh, I don't believe God was not shown as a God of mercy. Uh, what was the second one? Uh, God is distant and angry. I don't think God was distant and angry. I think God was actually uh, very present, and he was. There was a theme of provision from God throughout the movie. What was the next one? Uh, God is inscrutable and unknowable. Uh, God is, with, with the exception, or w- actually with the caveat that Michael talked about earlier about uh, the Jewish interpretation of him being a transcendent God. I think that's a very valid point, but I don't think that he was inscrutable and unknowable. I think he went out of his way to be knowable to a certain be knowable uh but but he left noah to his own devices to figure out what he meant that was pretty inscrutable and unknowable and 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 noah could have gotten it wrong or because he he didn't communicate with noah like like, this is what we talked about actually did get it wrong yeah Yeah, that was the thing (laughs) right we we talked about this earlier it it depends like if you if you take a look at what your belief of the will of god and how he sets things in motion so like I said, I saw that differently, and I think it's easy to see it differently, but I understand if you saw it that way, then that would have also been a dislike of mine. Okay. Uh, my next point uh, was Noah was uh, not, a, not not made out to be a righteous man, but a bloodthirsty and vengeful man. Um, I would not consider him bloodthirsty or vengeful. I would consider him holy, um, not holy, like H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-Y. Fully. Fully. Yeah, fully. Fully. Um, zealous to serve the will of god as he understood it i didn't right, he was him, so he was committed completely and totally i thought this is where we're going with this to god's justice in the movie to, we're, to we're, god's will which he saw at this time was justice 
Okay. And I thought I thought it was actually commendable because I don't think I think a lot of people I, I think I wish more people if they really truly believed in what they believe had the 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 scruples that Noah had to follow what he thought the will of God was because everyone else on the boat was like oh let's just stop and let people on it's awful that they're dying and he was like no it will not happen and I I see like if you use that as an allusion to like Christianity today I think it's I think it's a pretty telling um, allusion to the, uh, like I said, pet peeve, but uh, the people's lack of actual follow through with their faith, the, you know, the words, not the yeah. actions. And, but Noah totally believed what he believed and he did everything even against his family and against rationale. And I think we see that um, alluded to in other stories in the Bible. Um, but you know, God always stays the hand. And in this case, based on the interpretation of the movie, he picked a man who he knew couldn't follow through, but could follow through to the point that he only allowed his family to live, but could not actually kill his family as well. So like I said, it's another God's will thing. So if he was just a murderous man who was just doing this because he heard God say something and he basically did the opposite. I would have a real big problem with Noah, but Noah as a character in this movie, trying to figure out the will of God, I think is an accurate representation of what most people of almost any faith try to do on a daily basis. Um, so that would be my counterpoint to that. Although there, you have to admit that there was a real emphasis on, on providence and natural revelation and almost no emphasis whatsoever on the idea of special revelation. I mean, that is true. Yeah. So, which I think, you know, like I said, I think that goes back to the less Christian, more Jewish, Jewish slash Jewish mysticism. Yeah. Which Jewish I think, mysticism, which I think is actually but, very true to his source text. Right. So, right. But not really true to uh traditional ortho- Orthodox Judaism because they, I mean, obviously, they have an extraordinary respect for the special reveal will of God in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, to the extent that, like, <laughs> even touching the book itself is uh, a sacred act, you know? Yeah. All right, my, my next point was that they uh, made the Dominion Mandate out to be a bad and evil thing. I think the way they presented it actually showed that... It, uh, the whole it it gave us the understanding of why Tubal Cain was actually bad. It's because he thought the uh, the things that God had given in the commandments and dominions that He had given were for His benefit, when they're actually all for um, the glory of God. And so, when he thought they were for the glory of man, it showed how he took something. And I think it's another good allusion to uh, things that people do now when they like they basically handpick scripture to prove whatever they want to. Um. If you, you know, reading scripture to your agenda as opposed to reading scripture under the understanding that all scripture is pointing to glorify God. And so the fact that they gave him that verse, I thought was actually fairly brilliant because it showed how utterly misunderstanding he was of who the creator was. And it showed completely why he was in the position that he was. But the but there's no there's no meta narrative structure that allows the audience into the idea that there is a proper way to interpret that verse. Like the verse is entirely polluted by the fact that it's put in two mouth. Well, I think the the what he tries to do not a hundred percent successfully. This is another reason. Like I didn't totally like him on the boat. Was mm-hmm. that 
they tried to put ham there saying, well, you know, God said that, or well, you know, dad, that Noah said that there, you know, that there were, you're gone forever now when you bit the head off the lizard, you know, it's showing that Tubal Cain is wrong, even though they don't do it through the proper fully expo- exposited meta narrative that you're kind of alluding to. Well, no, no, no. I, Tubal Cain is wrong. You definitely know that meta narrative speaking. And what I'm saying is there's no meta narrative structure to allow you to believe that the dominion mandate is right in another context. I think from the beginning of the movie, when you see Noah ha- like, you know, telling uh, Ham that they only uh, take what they can, that what they need and what they can use, I think that's that's the juxtaposition of what we saw earlier in the film. But what so, about civilization? Is civilization okay? What is the only? I mean, the cities of Cain are the black ink stain on the globe in this movie. Literally, they, they mm-hmm. are literally the black ink stain of sin on the globe. There is no sense in any sense at all that civilization is good or could be good within this framework. This, the, in fact, it's get back to the garden, get back to nature, get back to you know the Edenic reality because civilization is ultimately intrinsically bad. Right. And that's, that's exactly what I'm, what, what I'm saying in the millennium. I'd say that's that a better way to say it then. Um, okay. So, so what he said, <laughs> I just felt like it was particularly, I, I felt like it was particularly brought out to me when, when, uh, Tubal Cain basically takes the dominion mandate and says, God, I'm doing this thing that you said to do. Why is this bad? that this particularly showed this worldview that was present in this film, which I think happens a lot today. But if you take it into the right context, then yeah, there's definitely a perversion of the dominion mandate for sure. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, uh, hyper capitalism that has been unhinged from any kind of a biblical morality that has absolutely Mm -hmm. no concept of ministering to, to humanity or human beings. And it's like totally breaking the gold rule at every front for selfish ends that are destructive to the whole globe. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, that's obviously (laughs) bad. Okay. I'll give, I'll grant you that. But, um, but a person profiting off of a good service for and, and with you know if his priority is for the purpose of actually benefiting other people and glorifying God, I don't care if he makes a huge profit. I mean, for all I care, he could be making billions of dollars doing that, and that's great if he wants to do that. And if that means building a city or you know building buildings or whatever, like if you want to know that if here this is what you should do. If you want to know the difference between good civilization and bad civilization, drive down down I ten. Get to El Paso, look to your left at Juarez, and look to your right at El Paso. And there you go. Unfortunately, I I don't have the context for that. I'll take your word for it. Well, El Paso is right on the border of Mexico. And you can see that, you know, civilization is not all bad if you go there. (laughs) (laughs) This is what Google Maps is for. Street view. Okay. Yeah, street view. Um, I did have a few things that were not related to the theological aspects uh, that I, I just want to touch on briefly, although you may not let me fizz. But <laughs> well, you said just pause after everyone. Okay, because I feel oh, like you saw. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Like, we didn't do the Methuselah one because I actually disagree with you a little bit on this. Okay, one, TJ. well, I, I said Methuselah was a magical and good man, but he got killed in the flood anyway. Okay. I, well, you know, well, uh, a little bit. Methuselah, I think being magical was 
okay, I didn't have a problem with that. Do you know that apparently the translation for the name Methuselah means when he is dead, it will come. Well, or when I think he goes, it, it will come. So I, the I, idea was that when he died, the flood would come. Yeah, I remember seeing some math somewhere, and, and I don't remember where this was, and I can't do the math. Some, some, some somebody somewhere went through the math and showed that the flood happened five years after Methuselah died. Yeah. Or so. thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you didn't you say something about like uh, you you had a problem with like there was no uh, oh gosh I had a the, well th- those were all the points I just made recently the theological points okay I was gonna say something about like have you ever I guess it's how you interpret how you interpret how you'd write something because I would say that in my life like I have. 100% had times when I felt God spoke something to me, but did not audibly speak it. So when I describe it, if I were to write an essay about it, I would say God spoke to me or God spoke to my wife and I. And I think if someone read it a thousand years from now, they would say, oh, well, God audibly spoke to them. But mm, we could we could talk about the closing of the canon of scripture, but then yeah. maybe beyond the 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 uh, scope of this episode of the podcast. Oh. But we can say this, that Noah had nothing but oral tradition. Like he didn't have, necess- he didn't have a Bible in the same sense mm-hmm. that we have it. So for God to speak to him in any kind of a particular way, it would have had to have been directly. Right. Or through dreams. I mean, like I said. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Okay. Or through a vision. But even still, it would have had to have been direct contact. Mm-hmm. Whereas with me, God does speak directly to me every day when I read the Bible. Yeah. Uh, I'm so, to- yeah. Okay, so I'm trying to look up a specific verse uh, real quick. Um, here we go. Is it from the New Testament? But though, but though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So my, my only thing, Fizz, is as long as, as whatever God spoke to you is not contradicting his revealed will and his revealed word, then we'll talk about this another day. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I completely understand like wanting to have a problem with that. But I think wanting to have <laughs> like contextually, I, I, I think I don't think it's that like it's a deal breaker okay. or it should be a deal breaker. All right. Let me dive into these other points real quick. Just at, on a fantasy level, does the film succeed as a fantasy film or, or just as a narrative film? And I feel like it doesn't one one word or two words uh, to start with rock transformers, Michael Bay rock transformers. Beautiful. What the heck were those things like like stupid, stupid I expected, even though I don't believe that the Nephilim are descendants from angels or whatever, you know, whatever the popular modern opinion of that is, I expected some sort of version of that to be in the movie because that's a very popular opinion, right? That there is some sort of spawn of angels, in, you know. But what the Rock Transformers were just not what I was expecting at all, and I just thought they were silly and pointless and and stupid. Maybe uh, like Rock Transformer Gumby spiders, <laughs> something like that. Um, all right, so that was uh, point A. Uh, next, Tubal Cain, the whole Tubal Cain plot was completely pointless. Like, it, it didn't really serve any purpose in the film at all, and especially him being on the Ark. Uh, aside from it being contrary to the source material, like, I, I, you know, it didn't go anywhere. It just didn't go anywhere, and he finally, he's going to kill Noah, and like, it's, I don't know, it just didn't amount to anything. It didn't do anything for me. It was pointless. I'm pausing to see if you wanted to give any refutation, Fizz. No, I feel like we've already talked about this okay. throughout the show. Um, Methuselah. Although, 
Oh, go ahead. There's one thing I think they did do well, which is that when Ham killed Tubal Cain and Tubal Cain kind of like gave him the snake skin and said, you are a man, like there was a very clear connection between the uh, the blessing of Noah and the blessing of Noah's father to Noah with the snake skin. To where it was almost as if Tubal Cain was passing on the line of Cain to Ham. Right. Like in that moment. So I, that's one thing I will grant them. If they had put that at some other point in the film, I would have been way better. But yeah. Um, all right. So Methuselah living alone on a mountain. So how exactly were, I mean, where did uh, Noah's father come from? If the guy's living alone on a mountain, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, he's the longest living guy. Maybe his wife's already dead. Yeah. yeah, but why was he the only one up on a mountain? I just don't get it. It's where he lived. Yes. He was a mountain mystic. He was like a mountain shaman like Zarathustra or something. Yeah. TJ, whenever you live to be 600 and whatever years old, you tell me what you're going to do with all your free time. You're going to buy a mountain and you're going to go up there and you're going to mix potions. Yeah. So I-, I wanted to do the Yoda quote, but I don't know what the exact year he said. So when 900 and something years old, you are. <laughs> um. All right, so Noah is basically an anti-hero in this film, and I am so done with anti-heroes. I, it, it, it worked well for the Dark Knight trilogy, and I hope it's never used again, and people keep using it, and they made Noah from a righteous man into the anti-hero here, and I just, I'm, I'm done with it. I, I'm so sick of it. You um, know why it worked for the Dark Knight? Tell me. Because he's Batman. Because he's Batman. I'm Batman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call. I wouldn't really call Noah the anti-hero. I'd call him either the reluctant hero, um, or the uh, the troubled, or the 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 real hero. I mean, like the the not like the, the okay. true not the true hero, but well, like the. Let me read you a paragraph that I wrote about this. Noah's motivations make no I've sense. Already read it. Okay, we don't really get to know him or identify with his perspective throughout the film, and we get to know his family even less. Noah is a terrible protagonist. He's trying to kill everyone so that the animals on the earth can be at peace with no one to disturb it, and he made terrible mistakes that cost many people their lives. That's an oversimplification that misses the entire point of what Noah's supposed to be doing. The reason Noah does all these things is because God, he feels God tells him to, which I think is a very righteous and awesome thing, reason to do anything. Unfortunately, I think he's wrong, but um, I think you're both mixing though. Your, your, your religious, philosophical, theological perspective. I mean, cause right now, if we're just talking about Noah as a narrative structure, he, it was fine. Like you can't fault Aronofsky as a screenwriter on this one necessarily. I mean, you could in a few places, but as far as uh, Noah's overall character arc, I, I, I mean, I thought it was it was totally competent writing. I guess. But, yeah, I didn't. I didn't. But maybe maybe I am having trouble separating it. I don't think I am. I, I feel like I would hate it, this film just as much, even if it weren't based on the biblical story. No, I, I don't know. His character arc. It showed yeah. every reason why he changed. Like yeah. he had a defining moment, and then it changed his view on things. But it was also it was subtly acted. It was it, you know there was a there was I thought there was a good bit of nuance in it. I don't think that they left him totally undeveloped or without motivations. Like there were def- the motivations were definitely there, and I mean the spirit of it. Like honestly, like my wife was crying when uh, uh, Noah's wife, Noah's nameless wife, uh, forg- <laughs> forgave him in the end and brought him back. Like now, and I can, and I can totally understand like. Uh, we and both of us, my wife and I, driving back, we talked about. It, and we're like, I can totally understand if you just separate it from the scriptural account altogether, and you're just taking it as a narrative structure. It was moving at points, and 
there were definitely there was definitely skill in the way they they put together the characters and the way they wove the story. See, and I was never moved during any point in the film. I just, Probably because you were so annoyed, though. So that's the thing. No, I'm I don't think so. Because I went to the film expecting to not like it theologically, but to like it as a movie. And I didn't. I, I You know, I just didn't. Yeah. I, I was completely moved when when Methuselah touched Illa's belly. And I that, was like, that was so stupid. It's so stupid. Well, I guess if. Well, never mind. I won't get into that. <sighs> All right. I guess if. Well, never mind. Uh, my, my my biggest complaint narratively, since we do know the basic story, the film should have been more about exploring the characters. And like, I, I know, Fizz, you're going to say, well, it did explore the character of Noah and look at the character. But, but I, I felt like I, I only even so I only felt like there was a surface evaluation of what was going on. Like we didn't explore the characters. Not really. People just kind of were the way they were. Noah maybe had the most character depth and he felt two dimensional to me. I I mean, I just. I think you could probably say that about any movie that's ever been made. That's just the way movies are. Like you're talking about a two hour foray into the, into an epic. But then why know? don't I feel that way when I walk away from Captain America, the winter soldier? Cause you weren't annoyed at Captain America. The winter soldier. I mean, okay. So I do a little bit, like I felt that way about the winter soldier himself, but I didn't feel that way about our main character, Captain America. You know, I didn't feel like there was a lack of character development with him. Because you well, had read comics a, for like 30 years and had yeah. Captain America like shaped in one way and then had him Twisted shown on screen in a different else. way than you imagined him. Yeah. Were you going to say something, and, Michael? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I think I think it has a lot to do with the fact that you probably have less invested in the Captain America canon. And if they make some slight changes to him or, you know, whatever, if they flesh it out or whatever, you're not as you're not going to be as, uh, as anti on it. Um, you know, but I mean, people are really passionate about a lot of these source stories. And, and in this particular case, I am very passionate about the source story. Uh, and so are you at Noah was not a likable character in the movie. Like Captain America is likable. He's a True. hero. Yep. Um, Noah is not a likable character. He, 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 uh, but he is sympathetic in a sense. I mean, if you look at his struggle and you think if I were in the same situation, what would I be doing? You know, like in those, in that sense, you can say, wow, that would, that would be so difficult. And you know what? I didn't even think you needed all the other Tubal Cain killing of the twin daughter or granddaughter stuff in the story I mean, for it to still be an extraordinarily difficult story. Yeah. Because I mean, if you're the man God chooses to build an ark so that he can rebuild humanity and he's going to destroy the earth. And you have to watch and hear it and are on a boat for months having to mull over that fact, that very, very, very apparent fact I think that's going to split a man's brain in two. And if it doesn't, like, you're a hard-hearted bastard, you know? Yeah. Like, I completely agree. Actually, and I think that I, I actually wondered at one point if the only reason that he they they had the, the twin daughters part in there was because they were, in his mind, he was trying to uh, explain why Noah would get drunk when he got off the ark. Yeah. Like, he had to be going through, like, some kind of grief or, you know... But it was enough that the world had just ended, right? You'd think. You'd think. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, again, you know, it says that Noah was a um, uh, 
had a vineyard and he made wine and so so like this is not happening like immediately after he gets off the ark this is like several years down the road so biblically speaking anyway uh i really so so that those were the things that i uh disliked about the film finally got through them after you guys have thrown stuff back at me <laughs> uh, <laughs> i really just had one other one other point to make really just one other kind of thing to say i don't know if it's a point to make as much I, I it was just something interesting i was listening to this last film cast uh with um dave chen and devender hardware and uh jeff canada where they talked about the film and dave chen said something very interesting uh, again, I, if they ever listen to this, I enjoy listening to the Slash Film cast, even though they're all atheists. Uh, that's fine. Um, I enjoy the, listening to their perspective. But this was an interesting thing that, that Dave Chen said. He said that um, he, he kind of believes in God, maybe kind of, but he finds him, if he is real, really infuriating. Like, he has a lot to answer for. Uh, and that's why he liked Noah, is because it kind of brought that perspective out. Like, like because God has a lot to answer for here. You know, he didn't really communicate well with, with Noah and, 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 you know, he, he's kind of responsible for all this evil in the world. And so he really has a lot to answer for. I, I, like, like that perspective is so foreign to me. I found it fascinating that he came away, he came away from Noah with, with that. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? I felt the same way. I mean, as far as the depiction of God was concerned, I, I, I know Fizzle said he was, is really present throughout the film. I thought he was present in the sense of, providence but you can think of providence as as a as a natural process as far as his actual active personality it was basically not there like he said he said the rainbows oh yeah the rainbow (laughs) beacon okay the rainbow (laughs) beacon at the very end was a bizarrely uh broken uh picture in in my mind because of all the things like that was the one thing in the whole movie where arnofsky could have just used a natural sign mm-hmm. all the other ones where he had the opportunity to you know <laughs> where it was like the only way you can explain this arnofsky arnofsky is through a supernatural thing he's like yeah definitely and then in that one the only part of the movie that he could have used a totally natural sign, he uses this supernatural <laughs> rainbow beacon. I just didn't really like. I, I didn't. I didn't understand that. Well, and he kind it, of boxed himself into a corner because, like, God doesn't speak to man in this movie, and now right. you know the, the yeah, whole point of the rainbow. The reason we know that the rainbow means God will not flood the earth again is because God said so. But we yeah. don't have that knowledge. We can't be communicated that knowledge to now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I thought, I I thought in, in general the depiction of God was one of like sort of a distant, justice obsessed megalomaniac, sort of like Richard Dawkins' perspective on God. Yeah, yeah, and and I I just you know the point that that uh, Dave Chen was making was that he liked the de- the depiction of God in Noah because that is how he sees God is someone is 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 a being who has a lot to answer for. It's almost like, you know, I don't believe in God and I hate him. Well, I, I want to say this, uh, so I will. <laughs> Please do. Um, yeah. the, it, it goes back to one of the, the, I think the first things that I, I one of the first points I, I wanted to make about the movie. And like, atheists aren't going to go see God is dead. They're, God is not dead. Or God is not dead. They might see um, God is dead. I guess they might. <laughs> <laughs> um, they oh, might yeah, God, God is not dead. Yeah, they, to, like, they might go see joke God. about how bad it is. Yeah, but and then and the chances of them seeing Son of God is not very good. You know, again, unless they're going for like comedic 
Yeah. But, I mean, I love watching bad movies. So. Well, I do too, but I, I typically don't pay. <laughs> then you to should see probably bad go movies. see Son of God. <laughs> um, but but that's the thing. Like, I can't I can't imagine lots of atheists even to lambaste it, not to to go see these movies. Uh, I can see them pirating them <laughs> just to have a, a group like uh, mystery science theater kind of session. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, you know, they're not going to see these movies. The, the slash film cast isn't doing a, uh, an episode on God's not dead. No, uh, never going to happen. And this movie, like I said, whether, where you, wherever you fall on the very vast scale uh, coming out of this movie, it, creates conversation. It's one of one of my favorite things that, you know, I I get to do is what, you know, Michael gets to do when he does moviology once or twice a year. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> or, or, you know, what we get to do in real world theology. I mean, this is what we do. We get to look at the things that are shaping culture. We get to, we get to talk about these movies with people. And I don't, I just love the fact that, you had atheists going to see this movie and talking about their possible belief in God. I think that's amazing to me. Um, I think that opens doors that I would never normally have open and I'm not necessarily going to use it to prove to them, but it sure opens, like I said, it opens a door for conversation and conversation can build relationship. And from relationship, there's amazing things that can happen. And so, so I mean, yeah, the only thing I'll say in response to that, and I, I, it's not that I disagree with you. It's just that I would say, be careful not to get your emphasis off, because what, what, how does the Bible communicate primary? It says the primary communication of, of God's uh, will, of God saving people, is through the foolishness of preaching. Now, I'm not saying that it's not good to generate conversation. I'm just saying that what, what, was, what was the film Noah preaching? It wasn't preaching the truth, at least not not from what I could tell. I think, that but it did start conversations about important topics that otherwise prob- probably would not have been broached. What's no, sad and what's shameful and what is really, really, really frustrating to me at the base of my heart and in the turning of my stomach, I hate this so much, is that Christians would never make a film that was artistically as sound. As Noah. Oh, no, for sure. I completely agree. And it's why I don't usually watch Christian films of any kind. And and the fact is that if a Christian were to – see, most Christians don't believe this, but I am absolutely positive if a Christian were to make a film at that same level, atheists would go and see it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they have. Uh, yeah. The ben the Hurt. director who's done The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's a Christian and he's – people are – paying lots of money to see these movies. So I'm talking if they were to actually do a Noah film. Oh, well that was actually at the level epic scale, like a biblical story told by a Christian at that same level. I'm saying though, like stay true to the biblical account, but like with artistic vision and like serious, uh, a, a serious thoughtfulness, uh, of reality. Like not trying to sugarcoat anything, like let it be what it is. I think atheists would go and see that too. So basically, quit making trite, silly, stupid, yeah. cheesy films like Time Changers. I, I, I mean, I didn't say that out loud, did I? Like anything, just <laughs> name, uh, courageous, facing the giants. Uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 I have a hard time being really critical of these things because I mean, I know they're trying their best, but I just don't think they have any talent. 
Yeah, and I see. I, I have a hard time criticizing facing the giants, for instance, because I know the filmmakers, and I've I actually uh, I worked on the some of the behind the scenes material for that. Yeah, uh, that thing. Yeah. And I love the guys. They but, seem but like I, great I agree guys. With you. They seem like great guys. I like I said. I mean, and I think that they're trying for something that is good, but I just don't think they're making something that's actually good. Yeah. And I, I, the bottom line is, I don't really know what to tell to guys like that, except for that. I mean, I don't know what to say about anything because that's what's so frustrating about it. You go out there into the Christian world, you're like, why is everything in art so bad? Yeah, I completely like, agree. So bad. Well, well and, and we- one of the things – one second, Fizz. I promise I'm, I'm going to let you talk. Um, w- one of the things that I've said consistently over and over again to people about Noah is why – in on God's green earth, are we letting atheists tell our stories? Why aren't we telling our stories? Well, I think anyone can tell our stories. I think why are we let them telling them better than we are? That's, that's what I mean. That's what yeah. I mean. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you were going to say something, Fizz? <laughs> well, there is a great quote by uh, a fellow podcaster named J.R. Uh, Foresteros, and he was talking about uh, God's not dead, and he said one of the worst ways that we can engage people who have different beliefs in us uh, is to set people who have different beliefs of us or only compare our beliefs to the worst of the people who disagree with us. And that's typically what Christian movies do. Mm -hmm. They're basically like, Oh, you have a professor who's just not, not Christian, but like he will make you fail you for, you know, how many atheists, I I don't know very many like atheists that would do that. They're kind of like, yeah, live and let live or just try to be good. I had one in college. I really okay, so, did. I took a but, pragmatist epistemology class and I did get I did get a C on a paper that I should not have gotten a C on because he didn't agree with my perspective. But Yeah. I mean, but I, I definitely understand what you're saying though, Fizz, because I you know, when you're not talking about a fundamental thing, and I'm and I'm talking about just among Christians, uh but I think it's the same kind of perspective. Um I uh I hold a view uh, in Christianity, commonly referred to, I don't like the term necessarily, but it's commonly referred to as Calvinism. But I am so constant, when I talk to somebody who doesn't hold that view, all they know is hyper-Calvinism, right? And so they they say, oh, well, you know, you're you're not a Christian because you believe this hyper-Calvinism thing, or, or what they perceive as Calvinism. So um, I think I get what you're saying, is what I'm trying to say. Mm. I get what well, you're saying, too, and and honestly, at the at, at the end of the day, can we just tell, like, forget about, just like, stop trying to save people with movies. Agreed. Like, seriously. Yes, just thank stop you. Stop trying to save people at all with movies. Just tell, tell good, stories. good stories. Boom. Tell good stories. Agreed. It, it, oh, it, I like how we said it at the same time because we were on yeah. the same page. Yeah, totally. But no, I think we are on, totally on the same page on that. And I think everybody's going to have a different story. And this, it's what's so frustrating is, if you really did have a real personal relationship with God, why is it that the only kind of information about him, because it's not just stereotypes of bad people in these movies, it's stereotypes of good people too. Mm -hmm. There's no, like, the ideas that they have about God in these movies are the kind of ideas that you would expect to read from a tabloid about God. Like, they're not, they're not specific. They're not real. They don't have anything to do with actual experiences. This, here's a mind-boggling example. This one really got me. The on the movie Facing the Giants, uh, when one of the Kendrick brothers is in the kitchen, uh, in, in in the movie with his wife in the movie, and they're having this sort of like back and forth banter, like talk. And um, 
it's really awkward. Yes. It's just so, so awkward. Yep. And I'm watching this and, I, and then all of a sudden it like a light goes off in my head and I realize, wait a second, they're actually married in real life. Like these people are actually married in real life. Mm, is that- and I was, I was like, how in the universe is it possible that these <laughs> two people aren't capable of doing small talk and banter when He's all you have to up. do, all you'd have to do, who, me? I think TJ's looking this up. I don't oh. think they are because I, I know the people and I'm pretty really? sure they're not. I thought they were. Nope, they're not. Oh, okay. Well, that explains it. <laughs> she well the thing is uh, and again this is shannon fields um she's just and i'm sorry shannon she's just not a good actress they're not none of them are yeah and that's okay it, it would actually be okay if they were good writers yeah <laughs> because uh, what i was gonna say and it still holds actually to be the case is like if you've ever had an experience of small talk with your wife in the kitchen like it's gonna be different for different people yeah like, it's not going to be the same. So you don't write a scene like that, hard, like set in stone, and then be like, okay, guys, we want you to say these lines. Okay, now your line, now your line, because that's awkward. Right, it's, it's horrible. Instead, just, it's like, okay, for small talk, you know what's going to happen? You guys are going to, like, go and hang out in the kitchen for a while, and we're going to film it. Yeah. And if, and you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. We're not going to set this in stone. Like, what kind of things might you say? Just go ahead. Well, guys, I'm having uh, so much fun. I hate to wrap this up, but yeah, we do need to wrap it. it up. So um, this has been a great conversation. Wouldn't you both agree? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So on the Movie Bite podcast, we typically rate films on a five-star scale. Uh, so let's let's rate this film. I've already got my rating out there. When I reviewed the film, uh, it was a half star out of five because uh, I really didn't like it. Michael, how do, you, how do you rate this film on that scale? I give it three stars. Okay. Much more kind than I am. And Fizz, you're you're like five and a half, right? The opposite. The opposite. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 um, I would. I gave this this film four stars the first time I saw it. Then I went back and saw it again, and I gave it four and a half. I loved it even more the second. I can't. I want to see this movie again. So, okay, well, do so. Oh, I, I will then. I, I, I well, fine. I, we'll go then. I will. I pity you. I'm there. <laughs> um. All right. So, Michael Minkoff. Uh. People may want to keep up with you, your work online. You, you do have the the Movieology podcast here on this very network, themoviebyte.com. The biannual um, podcast? Yes, the biannual <laughs> podcast. He's going to get so not going to let he, that he's, die. He's never going to come back on this show. TJ started it. I'm just. It's all, it's all good. It's um, so, so people can keep up with you there. Where else can they find you? Where can they find your amazing work? Uh, I don't really have any work, but no, I'm joking. I, um, right now it is being redesigned, but. I am the president of a foundation um, that is involved in the promotion and production of excellent Christian art. Right now, we imagine do, that. Yeah, right now we we're mostly just doing music, but uh, you can go and check out. Uh, right now, it's just a landing page while our website's being redesigned, but it's renewthearts.org. Real I straightforward. Ass- I assume your music is not uh, seven choruses repeated eleven times of the same no. three words over and over. No, it's not. It's a lot of different bands. And, you know, I mean, I record them here at our project studio in a retrofitted barn. So I'm not saying I've got multi-million dollar facilities to make really highly polished records. But I think that our work is authentic. Um, and I think that it's real. 
I think it speaks things that are, you know, actually happening with these people. And I think it, it it's a better representation of what's going on in Christian music, I think, than you'd find on like The Fish, for instance. <laughs> Please, The which, Fish. Well, you know, so I, the, I think The Fish does fill a really important purpose. Like if, if I'm on the verge of suicide and, and wanting to kill myself, like it will get me suicidal like really quickly. So. <laughs> Small, small niche, a very important niche. Yeah, very important niche. All right, Fizz, where can people keep up with your work? You have a podcast and stuff like that, so oh, tell, tell people stuff, about that. Mostly stuff like that. Um, you you can go to realworldtheology.com. That's R-E-E-L, worldtheology.com. Check out the podcast. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Uh, basically, I would say not quite this long, but no. we we just take a look at popular films um, the, the kind that are probably shaping our culture, um, and engaging those narratives, kind of looking at the themes, comparing it to our worldview and just having really great discussions with a rotating panel. So, yeah. And, and like your tagline is, uh, entertainment is not mindless. Yeah. So, story, if, story is powerful. Entertainment is not mindless. So we encourage people to watch kind of with their brains on. So they don't just go and see Noah and just take it for however they interpret it the first time or, you know, they, are, they can, are you taking a jab at me? No, no, I'm actually not. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually saying like people who would see it uh, very differently from you, you know, who, who like that, like the atheist who's like, I think that's the way God is, you know, not just taking it at face value, but really examining how that compares to uh, themes throughout the, uh, the movie themes in different worldviews and stuff like that. So, yeah. which is very similar to what they do on the, uh, on movieology. So, yeah, and, and I will say if you enjoyed this episode of the Movie Byte podcast, you will definitely enjoy movieology and you will enjoy real-world theology. Um, so check those out. If you didn't enjoy this episode, I promise you that we won't have that many episodes like this. This is a one-of-a-kind or one-of-a-few. Uh, we will have them occasionally because I do enjoy doing this, but I, I don't have the stamina that, that these guys do to, to do it every week or every month or however often or ever. By, 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 by year. <laughs> Twice a year. Twice Bi-annually. a year. Biannually. So, um <laughs> Anyway, uh, so if you want to keep up with me, you can uh, find me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash tjdraperpro. You can find me on MovieBite where I write a little something every day, although I don't think I'm going to get to write anything for tomorrow. I think it's just going to be the podcast at this point because it's gotten really late on us. Uh, but you can uh, – there's always something new on MovieBite every weekday. Uh, that's where you can find me. And uh, if you want to find show notes for this episode, they'll be at moviebite.com slash mbpodcast slash 86. Uh, this this episode's show notes will be there, and everything that we talked about, every link that we find to be relevant will be there. Uh, if you'd like to give this show a rating in iTunes, that would really help us out. You can go to iTunes and search for Movie Byte, and we're the very first result, believe it or not, if you can believe that. So go there and give us a five-star rating. We would love that. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I promise you the podcast will not be as long, and it'll be a lot more fun if you did not enjoy the theological discussion. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, I think that's everything. I have one more thing. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I think I found the painting that Michael referred to a lot earlier, and I think it's called After the Deluge by Francis Danby. Can you drop that link in the show notes? There's tons of links to it. I'll have to go find a good picture of it. Okay. If you can drop that in the Google Doc, I'll make sure they wind up in the show notes. With that, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me, guys, and discussing the movie Noah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.